This podcast is brought to you by EaseUS. EaseUS is a lightning-fast disk cloning software for Windows PCs that makes upgrading hard drives and SSDs fast and easy. Not only can you quickly migrate data from one computer to another, but you can also effectively create local backups of your hard drive with this one-click solution. And there's no need to reinstall when you do it, and it's already compatible with both Windows 10 and 11. EasyUS has data recovery, disk management, screen recording, and data migration software, and you can support the channel by checking them all out in the links in the description. But also support the channel by using Broken Salecon to get discounts on Windows keys at cdkeyalfred.com and on Vite Ramen at the links below. And we'll talk more about those sponsors later. But for now, let's just get on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And actually, today I'm having on someone that, like, you know, I'm always lurking in the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, even if I'm not talking usually. And I think, I, I want to say about a year ago, I occasionally saw someone share a video by uh, the channel High Yield. And I remember clicking on it and going, oh, this is one of those uh channels that has like 50 views on a video and is not that big and you know sometimes youtube randomly just suggests to me these videos i've never heard of and i click on them and they're terrible but that that wasn't the person i'm having on today i was like oh this is pretty good and i recently checked again and out of nowhere you have over fifteen thousand subscribers and i i noticed actually that you were talking about some similar subjects to what i am which is in this case a little rare i mean like if Raptor like refresh, whenever Raptor like refresh comes out, of course, everyone will probably have a video on it. But not everybody's talking about NVIDIA going to chiplets, the design costs, like the advantages and disadvantages and why they might do that. And th there's a lot of subjects this guest has talked about recently that I've noticed I'm talking about, but I don't think enough other people are. And so I wanted, well, I thought this week would be the perfect time to have you on. So please introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, I, I think you already introduced me very well, but again, um, my name is Max. I run a small YouTube channel. I actually just surpassed 16,000 subscribers. Every thousand is for me still a huge milestone. Um, and I started High Yield about two years ago, um, just on a whim. Actually, on the first day where I uploaded my first video, when I woke up in the morning, I didn't know I was going to do the video. I just, I just had this idea. And then I went shopping and was waiting in line at the supermarket. And I just decided, okay, because I was thinking about um, the Steam Deck and the APUs it's using. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a video about it. And it wasn't very good in my opinion. And I thought like, who's going to watch it? Myself and my mom. <laughs> and then the next day I had 100 views and three subscribers. And mm. I've been doing it ever since. Like that, that was the starting point. So I have to guess though, did you... Did you like repurpose a Google account YouTube channel you already had? had? Was it already or was it already called High Yield? And because when I, uh, I I've shown this, um, I believe in 2019, the Christmas episode with me and Dan, I show mm -hmm. a couple clips of a video I never put out. Like I had been thinking of making a YouTube channel for a very long time before I actually did in 2018. 
Um, just because I was tired of arguing with people in the WCCF tech comments, because uh, man, you can put in a lot of research, and the the response will just be a few slurs and calling futile. you stupid. Futile, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, let me just throw this out there. And then I made one video. I was like, this is terrible. It's very embarrassing. So I didn't even put that out. But then months later, um, I my first video was actually talking about how the idea that AMD is going to make a GDDR6 version of Vega was absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I don't know why. I was just like, I have to say something. So had you been thinking about making videos for a while? Did high yield already exist? Like, did you already claim that YouTube name? Or after you threw this video out, did you change the name of your YouTube channel to that? I initially, then the channel was called something different. But I think I claimed high yield a little bit before, a few weeks before. And I actually thought about making videos for a while, but not like a consistently. Like mm -hmm. every now and then it popped up in my head. Like I could talk about this. This is really interesting to me. And because it's basically my, my hobby for the last 20 years, like that's what I spend a lot of my time, like hours every day, um, especially when I was still in school and then in university, I spend hours in forums discussing, like you said, maybe not on, on news websites, but more in like German hardware forums. And you, you realize it's a smaller community, but um, I think there's a lot of interesting topics to talk about. And when you, when you notice that you want to say something about it, I feel like I'm someone who likes to communicate and it was always in my mind, but I never did it until that day. All right. Well, so I actually wanted to start getting right into this then. Let me uh, put down a timestamp because I believe it is still your most recent video was talking about why NVIDIA might or might not use chiplets and GPUs. And I, I kind of want to start this a little open-ended. You know, what are you, just summarize your thoughts on why AMD went with chiplets now? Because any company could try to do it whenever. Like, why do you think AMD chose to do it with RDNA 3, not RDNA 2 or later? And why do you think NVIDIA still hasn't? I think why the reason why AMD chose it to go with chiplets with RDNA 3 is because AMD noticed probably over the past couple of years that actually learning by doing is a thing. There's a, it's a difference if you do something in a lab in small scale, or even like if you simulate something then and if you, if you mass produce something, and I, I'm pretty sure they learned a lot with their initial chiplet designs. I mean, if you look at Sen 2, Sen 3, and now Sen 4, I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of, um, their current designs are influenced by mistakes, by random things that suddenly pop up mm -hmm. and they probably wouldn't need RDNA 3 to be chiplet-based right now, but someone, they decided we will be moving towards the chiplet-based future and we have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And once you start mass-producing um, a, a product like that and you get it working, there's so much, so much data you get, there's so much engineering knowledge you build up and not only engineering knowledge, but implementation knowledge with your, with your foundry, you know, you deepen the relationship with, with TSMC, you're using different nodes. And I think that's like, that's invaluable. So even if it might not have the, achieve the performance they wanted or be the product they, they planned it to be, I think what they learned um, clearly influenced the future. Maybe that's one of the reasons why RDNA 4 will be, uh, 
what it will be in the future. Maybe that's one of the reasons he decided to take a step back. Right. You're referencing the fact that me and I think two, at least two other people on Twitter, one of them I regard pretty well, uh, Kepler on Twitter yeah. personally. Um, you know, it, it seems like at a minimum, it's incredibly unlikely they're going to launch a super complex big flagship uh next year with RDNA 4. Now now to be fair, from what I've heard there's still a narrow chance they may launch it, but it's like I've been told it's very 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 remote. But that would tell you though is if there's still a chance they may launch it, they could they could do it probably. I, it kind of is just sounding like they just don't think it's worth it. But I guess what I want to ask is, do you think if AMD does that, if AMD indeed launches just mid-range, maybe they'll try to argue it's high-end, you know, who's to say, um, and below, and doesn't launch some super elaborate enthusiast chip next year with RDNA 4, and then that does really well, how do you think that would influence if RDNA 5 has a super complex chip? Because I'm starting to wonder, like, and it kind of, to me, sounded like you were saying that uh, AMD tried it. They learned from it. Do you think there's a chance what they learn is it's not worth it? Maybe they learned it's not worth it right now. Yeah, for sure. Or like in two years and four years. That's maybe mm -hmm. something they um, realized while creating and, 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 and producing RDNA 3. Um, but I, I feel like for AMD, AMD always has been on this cycle of we can compete with NVIDIA in some space. Like they always had generations where they could compete and sometimes even beat NVIDIA, even back before um, AMD was like uh, almost going bankrupt in 2015, 2016. And now we see the new AMD afterwards. And I feel like if you, if you look at RDNA, the first generation, it didn't compete in the high end, but it was a very solid generation, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I bought a RX 5700 XT. Um, and if you look at RDNA 2, I mean, it, comp it did compete very well with NVIDIA. If you disregard the ray tracing and, and DLSS, if you disregard uh, the feature, the software side, but from raw performance and the cards, if you look at power consumption, um, the generation um, performed very well. And with RDNA 3, it's, I feel like if people weren't that hyped mm. and if, if expectation would have been lower, I don't think it's a bad generation. It's just not what it could have been. And I feel like that's, if you, if you get the feeling that the generation would have been better if it was monolithic, if they stick with, with their traditional RDNA, if they basically took RDNA 2, kept a single issue um, design, and mm -hmm. then kept it monolithic, and if you think they could have achieved the same result at, at, at minimum, that's kind of, that's a failure in most people's eyes, like in my eye too. So, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I actually did a video um, looking at, you know, because I think one of my best videos that I put out before Lovelace launched was I made a deliberate decision to not ask any sources anymore about its performance, to not look at any other rumors out there. And I said, let's just look at the public data on <laughs> Silicon node gains you're supposed to get going from like eight you know to seven to four right and yeah. i had to, that took a lot of translating because it's like well it's technically samsung eight so what is that really comparable to tsmc and then and then going down tsmc's gains and it got to the performance level like to the decimal point exactly of what lovelace was and i thought well 
why don't I go back though and then look at RDNA three? And if you actually account for how much, and, and I know some people would say, well, but it's the IO portion. That portion doesn't really count as being impressive if it's smaller. I, I don't think that's fair. I think if we look at the die size of RDNA three and just say, hey, like forty percent of it or something is six nanometer. So really, if we were to look at TSMC's claims of like performance and density gains you get going from seven to five nanometer, we should really only multiply that by like, you know, 0.6 or something, because only 60% of the node or whatever they're using is the new one. It actually works out that like RDNA three meets expectations or even exceeds it slightly. So I think I agree entirely with what you said with RDNA three. It's like, you know, from what I've heard and from what I can tell, there's a consistent 20% falling below what they were hoping to achieve. Phoenix, I mean, there were people that thought Phoenix was going to be at a certain level of performance. It's 20% weaker. Navi 31 is 70. Yeah. Like all of them are exactly 20% weaker. So there seems to be some consistent issue with the architecture. Having said that, it's not like they fell short of what you would expect out of that node gain. And so the only reason you would see it as a massive failure, I feel, is if you bought into the rumors that it was going to be like four times stronger than the 6900 XT, which seems to always happen, by the way, with AMD rumors. There's always this hype, by the way, that for some reason it's four times, I've also noticed. It's always four times. It's never five. It's four times for some reason at some channels. And if you just throw that aside, look, at the end of the day, AMD made something that costs less to produce than a 4080 and is about the same or slightly better. So you can't really say it's it's bad, right? It's it's not a failure, no. Um, but but it's still that, that's a, that's a relation between expectation and reality. And I feel it's especially hard on AMD because AMD has a brand issue. Mm-hmm. Like not it's not a brand issue per se, but compared to Nvidia, the Radeon brand is much weaker. There's no way denying it. Um, if you, I mean, you just have to look at Ryzen, how long it took AMD to build up Ryzen to consistently perform like every generation, it got better and better and better. And it took three, four, five years for Ryzen to actually become the brand it's right now. And not mm-hmm. only did AMD had to perform at the same da- time, Intel kind of lacked, they, Intel didn't perform as they wanted. They were stuck on all the nodes. They had problems releasing new, um, new, new generations with, with, they had power problems and it kind of worked both ways. So people started to looking at Intel at this, as this company that, uh, couldn't put out the products they, they promised. And then suddenly AMD did the opposite. They promised something and then they over, over delivered. And it took still a couple of years, like three, four generations for AMD to actually build a brand that is regarded as, as, as strong, like that mm-hmm. people talk about Ryzen. And Radeon is just in the shadow. It has always been in the shadow of NVIDIA. And I feel that's, of course, there's more spotlight on NVIDIA. Like if NVIDIA does something, more people talk about it. But mm-hmm. it's still, it's NVIDIA, you know? It's still, people are still a little bit more favorable towards um, the leading company, I feel like. And AMD is always promising. And Yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing that I've noticed recently. And I don't know what this is from. I, I, I honestly don't know if like these sensationalized opinions and like 
articles are, are just because these get more clicks. Like, because I think it's easy to make AMD fanboys mad. So maybe that's where a lot of this double standards coming from. But it's so bizarre how I noticed like, all right, so NVIDIA has tons of games, for example, that don't support FSR and only support DLSS. On top of that, they just, uh, for the 4060 review, like tried to do this weird thing where reviewers could get it early if they were only made a nice review. <laughs> and yeah. like the amount of backlash AMD would get if they would have tried to force people to do positive reviews if they wanted a card. And NVIDIA just did it. <laughs> and people were like, well, that's NVIDIA. It's okay. And then, and here we have an example where I actually su- suspect, by the way, Starfield may be the first FSR 3 game. We'll see, I guess. Um, like you, you have a game where it just it may not have DLSS at launch and there's this giant attacks and it almost feels like there's this weird thing where it's like, well, you know, NVIDIA, they're allowed to do bad things. They're allowed to have melting connectors. They're allowed to, you know, do all this crap. Yeah. But then AMD makes a mistake. And I feel like there's at least in the past year, I don't know that this was always true, by the way, but at least in the past year, it just seems like there is a double attack anytime AMD makes a mistake. Now, do you think that's true? And if you do, where does it come from? Or do you think it's just, or do you think it's not really true? It's just feels like it. Well, it's hard. It's it's hard to actually uh, real to actually say if it's true or if it feels like it. I'm I don't think I can do that. Um, to me, it feels like that. Um, but at the same time, where where it might come from is that people always want the perceived underdog to be better. You know, it's like in the mm-hmm. you know they have the the big guy and then you have the underdog and the underdog, of course. Not only will he win in the end, but he's also a better person. You know, he's nicer. He's, um, and that's what they expect the underdog to be nice. Yeah. Yeah. They expect the underdog to be nice. And also for the reason, like if I'm not buying Nvidia, if I'm buying AMD, at least, you know, I want a lot more, um, power for my performance for my money. At least I want this and that. Mm -hmm. And it's like this perceived, it's like, it's not a person, it's a company, but I always, like, I make these mistakes too. I, I get easily hyped. Like, one of the reasons I like hardware, I, 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 I fell into this space is like, because I like to think about the possibilities of yeah. what could be. And it's always better to, or it's, for me, it's always more fun to talk about quadruple the performance with like this insane chiplet design than like, okay, we get 15% more performance at 10% low, lower power consumption for the same price it's kind of boring. Um, yeah. So I think, feel like all of these aspects of hyping and regarding one company as, or perceiving one company as, as being the nicer guy and then being more disappointed. Mm-hmm. I think it's like very human and like, it's hard to, to actually stop that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying this cause I like feel bad for AMD. I, I don't really care. I just think it's an interesting thing where like, with Intel versus AMD CPUs. I still think about that with Zen 4, where it's like, okay, comparing the 7950X to the uh, i9-13900K, one of them uses half the energy, uh, and uh, and it costs less usually, and it's on a platform with newer features, and it also... Um, it's multi-threading is actually pretty comparable. It's single threading. It's like 5% worse. And yet you see people saying Raptor likes crushing Zen 4. And I go, so AMD is more efficient, better platform, actually usually cheaper, 
but Intel wins single threading by 5%. Why does AMD need to be better at five out of five things before they win? And Intel can win by being better at one or two. And I, th- and when I think about AMD and NVIDIA, it's probably twice as bad. Like they just know like they, for people to regard AMD as winning, like thinking of the 6,900 XT versus the 3090, it costs two thirds as much and used less energy, but it was like 5% worse in 4k. <laughs> Yeah, like I, it, the perception thing's very weird. It's I, I I try to work around it for my videos. I'm sure sometimes I still fail. Sometimes my my perception is screwed in one direction or the other. Um, but the good thing is I, I write a script and I can I can read it again and cut out the parts where I think like okay this might be a little bit too fanboy in one direction or the other other direction mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, I'm not trying to get hyped during my videos. It does seem like it's a double-edged sword for AMD for perception. And to be clear, I think at least half of that's their own fault. Like, they're... I think what people just want is consistency. So AMD, if you're going to be the good guy, then you've always got to be the good guy. If you j- want to be the, you know, cool one that less people know about, well, then you, you've got to be really consistent in your performance. And that's where I go. So do you think, though, because it does feel like AMD, they're still selling about the same amount of cards relative to NVIDIA they always are. So it's not like they're losing the entire market right now. But what do you think they could have done better with RDNA 3? Like, And I'm not talking about a time machine where we pretend it's stronger or something okay. <laughs> like assume the card, the cards are what they are. You know, let's even say maybe they didn't know until a month before launch, the performance would be a little lower if, if we want to give them that. But like, w- what do you think they did wrong with RDNA three? Uh, if, if the, if you think they did, we'll get to NVIDIA in a second. And you know, what do you think they need to do moving forward? Because I do feel like after every launch, there's some mistake here. Like RDNA two people at NVIDIA said, to me, we think they could have taken market share, but they didn't make enough cards mm-hmm. uh, to take market share. And NVIDIA just stuffed the channel with Ampere. What do you think they did wrong with RDNA 3? And what do you think they have to do right so this mind share that we're talking about here can actually turn around consistently? Like with RDNA 3, I would have started at the reveal. Um, do you remember the numbers they showed at the reveal? Um, yeah, they were the numbers it, all my yeah. sources said it was going to have, and yeah. then it didn't. <laughs> and then... And even if you think that's the numbers you will reach because you have a couple of more weeks time to finalize the drivers, like that's such a basic mistake, such a basic marketing mistake that I feel like the, the initial discussion would have been completely different if mm-hmm. AMD would have said, imagine you say, well, we're going to perform like this, the, the, the way the cards perform right now, and then you actually fix the driver and you release with better performance. That would have mm-hmm. been amazing and the that's other what way happened with rdna2 by the yeah, way their yeah. initial borderlands 3 demo was below the final product and then if, if if you don't achieve it and it performs as you said it would people are like okay and then i feel like the naming is also something when i heard the 7900 xtx um actually my first card was, was the radeon x 1900 XT that was back mm-hmm. in the day when they still had the XT. It was not my first card. It was the first card I actually saved a lot. My first card was like NVIDIA Viva TNT2 or something before GeForce. But my, the first card I saved a lot of money and bought it. That's when they had XT and XTX. And I was like, XTX, cool. 
like it must be super fast. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's a fast card, but it's not competing with the 4090. It's competing mm -hmm. with the 4080. And I feel like you can also manage expectations by, by naming your products accordingly. Like the 5700 XT in the beginning outperformed the 2070. And they forced NVIDIA to release the Super Refresh, mm -hmm. which was an adequately named card. And if you set expectation right, if you, if you set the proper names, and then maybe, you know, reduce the MSRP by a little bit, I think it would have, the, the reception would have been drastically different. Well, here's a question. Um, because there's two ways. I think we all agree at most the 7900 XT should have been called the 7800 XT. That was such a bizarre. The XTX thing is just weird. It's yeah. just weird. Like it, it, it. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. But do you almost wonder if they should have called it like the uh, 7800 XT? Like or the top XTX. one. If you, mm -hmm. you you can do XTX and the 7800, so people realize okay it's called 7800 but it's an xtx so it's almost a 7900 and then it performs outperforms maybe even a 4080 and you're like okay mm -hmm. that fits um i don't know md and marketing is like either hit or miss for me sometimes it's really great and sometimes their ces presentation um last uh, it was in winter i did mm -hmm. a video about it where they had like three different data points in the presentation, which contradicted themselves, and like, how much cash has Phoenix actually? Does it have the full size, half the size? Like, what what amount of cash? And there, three data points, and all three were different. And I was like, who is fact checking? Is there no quality insurance? Like, before you do your presentation, and mm -hmm. something is a little bit off sometimes with AMD. So, all right. I guess you think no matter what, it's just the initial presentation, how they presented the upcoming lineup. That 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 itself, that was the mistake. Like if they would have just been, and I and I think I agree, and I, I don't dislike your idea. Like if they would have called it the seventy eight hundred XTX or the seven eight fifty XT, they're like, hey, this is. And, and from what I've heard, they do have a variant where they can stack more MCDs on top for extra cash. So yeah. it's totally plausible they could make something a bit stronger, and they're like, but we think. You know, you want us to mass manufacture something a little weaker than a 900 XT. Maybe they make it 900, make the other one 750. I think everyone would have been happy. Yeah. Um, all right. But moving forward, ever get exhausted looking for a safe way to pay reasonable pricing for Microsoft software amongst tons of questionable listings on eBay and shady websites? Well, now you don't have to do this any longer, not if you go to cdkeyoffer.com. This piece of content is brought to you by cdkeyoffer.com and their back-to-school sale. Whether it's Microsoft operating systems, Office products, or even many of the latest AAA games, cdkeyoffer.com provides PC gamers with a product that I honestly think this community does need in a world where far too many of our components that make up our PCs are getting more expensive every year the last thing we need is monopolistically priced software to remain on that list of stupid stuff we pay too much for. And you know, the Moore's Laws Dead team has been working with CDKeyOffer.com for many years for a reason. They've been good to me. They've been good to Dan. They've been good to family members that use their website when they build a PC. And they've been good to the Moore's Law is Dead community as well. So whether you're looking for Steam, EA, Uplay, or PlayStation Keys, 
or, of course, Microsoft products. Support Moore's Law is Dead by using the code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all Microsoft products or DieShrink for 3% off everything else. Support us at cdkeyoffer.com today. Why, why do you think um, they've potentially canceled the complex design that that I actually had pictures of and leaked a week ago? Really interesting a, a week, pictures. A week ago? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course then, I watched it, yeah. And then pat, uh, patents emerge that pretty much lines up exactly with that. And I, I don't know. Let me let me get to this uh, reader mail question. Quick Jumper writes in and asks, Hi, Tom and Max. I was a bit surprised by the complexity of RDNA 4 when Tom leaked it. I was maybe expecting AMD to hit the pause button and try to iron out their current design that has a GCD and six MCDs. Maybe just iterate on that for a couple generations. But maybe I'm looking at it backwards. Maybe this initial design will be more complex at first, but then it will be similar to Zen or MI300. And you can just design one or two separate dies and then glue them together into whatever configuration you want. How do you look at innovations that AMD is doing with RDNA 4? Do you think that NVIDIA is cooking something similar or are they maybe a bit behind AMD? So I'm wondering if that the elaborateness of that design surprised you and like, Let's just start there. Did that surprise you how loud yeah, it was? It surprised me. It, yeah. it looked like a, a MI300 for gaming. And currently, MI300 is the most complex silicon chip out there. It's, there is no question about it. And mm-hmm. it's a HPC product. And it's in the different, a whole different price segment. And I'm seeing that kind of design for a gaming architecture, gaming chip, which um, just by being a gaming chip, even if they would have charged $2,000 for it because it's so fast, like there's like orders of magnitudes between between what you can uh, ask for a gaming card and what you can ask for an HPC AI card. So mm-hmm. that, was, that was a design I actually didn't expect. Yeah. Yeah, and what's weird is in a follow-up video I put out a few days ago, I mean, and I really drilled in on this. Nobody's heard of another design or seen another design. Everyone says this was the plan. This, like, what did I count? You had like three base chips, then three dies on top of each one. So you're looking at like 12 plus the multimedia die. So that's 13. Yeah. Then there's a base one. And then I believe there'd still probably be six MCDs. <laughs> so we're possibly, yeah, looking at like a 20 chiplet design. Um, yeah. And they and they weren't planning anything else. I really, I'm just, and I'm thinking of this live right now. Like, I wonder if the idea just was, hey, we're going to design this so that it can scale up that big. Like when I leaked MI300's design, it was clear you could go with this giant thing. But if they wanted to, they could have made a smaller one that has yeah. like four. Uh, uh, they're not like I guess you call them compute chip. Well, it's not really graphics. And, and I just wonder if that was their plan, that they're like, well, but we don't need to make the full one if we don't need to. What if we just use two of them with, what would that be, like six GCDs? But at a certain point, it just seems like they think none of this is worth it anyways, because they, I, I suspect Navi 42 was probably going to be like $900 or something, and then the top one was going to be two grand. Um, I guess... Why do you think they would have gone with that over iterating? Because I, I too, like the person who wrote in, expected it to be like Zen 2 to Zen 3 to Zen 4. Like they would say, well, Zen 2 made the initial design. 
and that's going to pay dividends for years. Now we're going to just make the chiplets themselves better. And, and they're not going from like Zen 2 to Zen 3. It looks like they wanted to go from Zen 2 to Zen 6. Yeah. Why do you think they would have done planned to do that so soon? Honestly, maybe it was like a moonshot product when they said where they thought, okay, we have this brand issue, like we talked about before. The radium brand isn't perceived as strong. And what's a way we could quickly change that? And the you can use chiplets for cost saving. You just cut them down in smaller parts. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have to tape out as many chips because you can use just a combinate, different combination for different um, SKUs. And they're smaller, so the, they're small in die size, higher yields. And you can use them for cost saving, like AMD did with, with Sen2, Sen3. You just have a few base chiplets, you tape them out, and you use them to create your entire product stack. But you can mm-hmm. also use chiplets to create a GPU that's much more capable than anything monolithic because you're not constrained by a single monolithic reticle limit. Like you can go well beyond 858 square millimeter and millimeter mm-hmm. squared. I think it's, I'm always confused. What's the right way um, to say it. And, I've heard, I don't want to yeah. get into it. I've certainly seen people say that in the comments, yeah. but I've actually heard experts. It's insist either one can be Th- yeah. that's what most people say is correct. But I've a lot of people in America who work at these companies say millimeter squared. This might, in Low German, it's got millimeter. So for me, it's actually easier to say square millimeters. So mm-hmm. I think it's the right way. So, but please continue. Yeah, yeah. sorry. For the, uh, I digress. Um, my point is that maybe someone at AMD thought, if we design this, actually mo- this actual monster, and I mean, it looks like a monster, and we have a chip that's double the performance of a 5090, or 50% faster, double performance may not be possible, but 40-50% faster. Mm-hmm. There's no way people can ignore that. There's literally no way. If you are a ultra gamer and you, you want the best of the best and AMD offers a chip that's 40-50% faster, you have to get it. Like Even if you're an NVIDIA fanboy, or that's, I don't like the word, but even if you're like an NVIDIA enthusiast, enthusiast um, you have to get it. And that would be a way, um, and maybe someone thought, okay, let's let's try it. Um, that's like something I could. Yeah, imagine. I mean, I'm just thinking here too while you were talking. Like, I came up with two more theories on why top RDNA four would have been canceled, but also why they would have even bothered being that crazy with it. I think I think the most obvious reason this would have been canceled. I talked about it again in my last video. Is um, look. Next year seems pretty clearly all about laptop. Besides server, that's always going to be number one for AMD server. Yeah. And they're launching both a three nanometer and a four nanometer version of Zen 5 to server. In fact, from what I saw in some roadmaps, three nanometer might be ready like January or something. So yeah. they have to launch both of these variants to server. Additionally, they're not just launching some new APU or two. Like last year, they, or I guess this year right now, they have Phoenix and then Phoenix 2. Next year, they're going to have like, Strix 1, Strix 2, Strix 3, Strix Halo, Hawkpoint. <laughs> like, like, that's five right there. And then possibly also, in addition to those five APUs, number six might be a PlayStation 5 Pro, in addition yeah. to two versions of Turin, in addition to, you know, MI400. All, all money's in AI right now. And you're like, well, if our major push next year outside a server is laptop, and now AI's here, are we really going to launch an MI400? 400 version gaming chip (laughs) like basically like i think that's the number one reason they would have canceled this but 
What I also suspect, I was just thinking while you were talking there, is maybe they went with this crazy design because long-term, some chief engineer at AMD is like, this is the one that will work best. Like maybe they started with RDNA 3, learned some things, and that was really just like Zen 1. And then they're like, we could iterate on that. We could. Or I am sure, this is something someone told me a few days ago, like at AMD, like when we're going forward, like like Navi 41 was canceled right before they were going to start manufacturing and doing physical testing. That's where all the money really is wasted if you don't launch a product. They're like, we wouldn't have gotten to that point though, unless we're sure it would work. I, I wonder if there's some chief engineer at AMD who's like, Yes, we could take the easy route and iterate on a, this simpler design, but I'm sure if we want like a Zen 2-like design that we use for five years straight, this one here will be more cost-effective and stronger and insisted on going forward. And then there were just market forces that pushed it down or something. That's what I'm starting to wonder here. I, I think actually your point about... Um this complex design, why the AMD is also launching so many other products. And especially if you consider um, the entire the, the supply constraint for the AI market, which isn't mm-hmm. actually at the foundry level, like TSMC could produce more chiplets, but it's more the packaging like le- level. Like if you're using Colvoss, um, that's where the production yeah. capacity is currently limited. And if if AMD knows we're going to sell that many MI300, because by now I'm think the, the order should be in. They are, they started shipping their first MI300As um, in the, a couple of weeks ago. And if it would compete with the production capacity um, of MI300, because you would need um, the same advanced packaging methods. I heard, I saw someone else mention that too. I don't remember where I saw it, but I saw a few people talking about this online of like, there's there's going to be a huge packaging bottleneck if they were to go forward with that with a graphics card. You know, yeah. it's not just the node, it's not just the cost. It's, hey, we can only, like TSMC isn't really caught up to mass manufacture that many chips that are this complex at once. Yeah. And actually this is a similar reason to why Threadripper hasn't really been that important to AMD recently. It's not just capacity and cost. It's that they're not sure they have the bandwidth to manage the lead times for Epic and that. And I wonder if they're thinking the same thing. Are we really going to affect our MI300, our MI400 lead times, which everyone complains are behind Intel on? Yeah. I constantly hear that from contacts in the industry. To make a gaming chip that costs two thousand dollars when no one wants a gaming chip for even a thousand anymore, yeah. you know, I really think that's what it comes down to. I, I think it would have been an amazing product for sure, but I don't think it would have been right for the market. Like even if they could outperform Nvidia, as you said, who who wants to buy a fifteen hundred or two thousand dollar Radeon card without DLSS, which is, has become like the selling point? And and how many would they sell? How much R and D and just resources would they pour into this design and maybe just you know having worked on it is valuable for the future right because i really get the feeling that they know this would work that the chiplet placement is all good they've they've done it they have the blueprint yeah like maybe what we're seeing here is what if instead of launching a 3950x the 16 core zen 2 
they said, we don't have the bandwidth, but we are going to launch up to the 5800X, you know, mm-hmm. which was still going to be, you know, better than the 3700X and 3800X by quite a lot, actually. Yeah. So we're going to launch that, but we, we just can't afford to launch the 3950X right now. But then the following year, one year later, oh, we're still going to have the 5950X. Like, we just need to update the chiplets. The layout's done. Most of the work's done. We just need to update it. I think that's probably what's going on. And I also think there's another thing AMD is realizing. Like, I think they fundamentally underestimated how much money and effort NVIDIA is pouring into software. Like, people always talk about the software thing. But I'm going to be honest, guys. Ten years ago, uh, NVIDIA software was complete ass. I'm just going to say it. Like, it was bad in my in my experience with Fermi. It was bad, 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 bad. And it had CUDA, of course. And then I think AMD was like, well, so we'll do Mantle and we'll do FreeSync after G-Sync. And they're like, we'll make FSR after DLSS. I think they fundamentally, I think what AMD knows, and I think this is something people need to talk, think about here. I think AMD isn't worried about DLSS 3. I think they already know what's going on with DLSS 4. I do. And I think that a lot of people may not understand that like some of my best leaks on AMD come from people at NVIDIA. <laughs> some of my best leaks from people in NVIDIA Come from people at AMD, like a lot of, I guess I shouldn't say which ones, but like some of the most accurate ones came from people at AMD about NVIDIA. So these companies are doing research and know what each other are working on sometimes. And I wonder if AMD is like, no one's going to buy a $2,000 RDNA 4 chip if we don't have a software as good as DLSS 4. Because I'm hearing some pretty radical things that NVIDIA is going to try to pull off here. And I wonder if they think they need to hold their flagship until their software has caught up. Like, I wonder if that's another thing they're thinking about. I wonder what you think about that. I, N- NVIDIA noticed with CUDA, they noticed if you build an ecosystem where people are, where your, your software is basically the industry standard. That, that alone keeps you in a market. That alone is a selling point. And they implemented the same um, for their graphics cards. And when I talk about the software difference between AMD and NVIDIA for the gaming side, I don't really talk about the drivers. Like AMD's drivers have been fine um, mm-hmm. for years. I, I feel like if I, if, I, if I use the UI, it's actually better than NVIDIA's. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't have, like, I'm running an RX, RX 6800 right now. And I had no driver issues at all. But what NVIDIA is good at is creating these, these extras, you know, um, NVENC, um, then, of course, um, FreeSync, which luckily got caught by, uh, mm-hmm. no, uh, sorry, G-Sync, which luckily got caught by FreeSync, and then DLSS, um, which first generation was horrible. Sec- second generation at start, I was like, okay. But now it's not a waste of time. Yeah. But now they're at a point where DLSS is actually a selling point. And two years ago, I was being like, "Mm, I don't know if if it's a selling point. But right now, yes, it's a selling point. And Mm -hmm. it's the same with the focus on on ray tracing. And something that I, I, I have to admit, I didn't realize when NVIDIA launched Turing, but it was actually a really, it was a big bet on the future. And they released this generation which with huge dice with ray tracing acceleration, no games existed at all. And it mm-hmm. was like a bet on the future. And it could have gone horribly wrong. It could have been like no one really builds ray tracing games. It's a fad. It burns out. Um, 
But that's actually valuable for the gaming community too, because I think right now ray tracing actually becomes viable in a sense that a lot of games actually look better with ray tracing. They kind of nailed it down. We don't need the fancy, like there there are some areas where ray tracing has a huge impact on picture quality and how the game feels. And there are some areas where it's like wasted. And I feel like the future for gaming is actually more ray tracing, more ray tracing. And we wouldn't be there without NVIDIA right now. And NVIDIA knows we have the software engineers. If we put in the work on the software side, that really reflects onto our hardware. And I don't, again, I don't talk about the drivers. I talk about the surroundings, about the extras, you know? It's like... Well, I think NVIDIA knew if they were ever going to make this bet, that was the time. Because Maxwell and Pascal took so much market share that everyone was going to buy Turing. Although Turing sales, if you go back and look, actually were pretty bad. Like It was a risk, but I think they knew if we're ever going to make this bet, it's when AMD is like Polaris. Like They're not even in the top three cards. Like Now's the time to try it, right? Yeah. And I'm happy they did in the end. Like At first, I was a little bit... uh, I wasn't so sure, but now I feel like, yeah. My next card, ray tracing performance, will be will be one of the points I'm looking at for sure. Well, it's interesting you say that because me and Dan have talked about this on die shrinks, broken silicons many, many times. Like once you get to a certain threshold of raster, we're not sure. Like ray tracing becomes more important. Um, most cards, it still isn't. How I would say it, it's not that at that threshold, but no. I do feel the forty ninety is there. Like where it's like raster is so easy to do <laughs> that of course yeah. ray tracing matters now because you don't need more raster you're doing 200 hertz in 4k like this is this is when ray and you know moving forward amd I, I hear rdna4 has a huge focus on trying to catch up at least relatively speaking on that um but actually i want to i to shift back to this question here mm-hmm. you said it was a big gamble a big bet when nvidia bet on ray tracing well, it was the same for RDNA 3 with chiplets. King Harkinian writes in and asks, has AMD jumped into GPU chiplets too early? They seem to hold a price performance advantage, no better than with RDNA 2, while offering problematic performance. NVIDIA, meanwhile, seems fully content with staying monolithic for quite a few years to come. So do you think RDNA 3 was a bad bet? Did they go to chiplets too soon? Or do you think it, even with the issues, no, nah, it was the right move? We'll look back on this, you think, and they'll go, it was worth it. Yeah. I mean, um, that's a super hard question to accurately answer because I'm lacking the sources at AMD to uh, to actually understand how much they learned from RDNA 3 and how much AMD mm. itself thinks it's a failure. But from my personal opinion, I don't think they jump into chiplets too early. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think the flaw for a- RDNA 3 is the chiplets per se. And I actually think... Again, going circling back to the to the argument of implementing a new design in high, high volume production, I think that provides a lot of value um, for for the whole company because you have engineering engineers working on these on these chips. They they gain experience implementing complex designs. They gain experience implementing um, two point five D and three D stacking designs with, with mm-hmm. interposers and with advanced packaging and. I'm pretty sure they have a lot of data points right now where they would say, if we would do RDNA 3 again, that's what we do different. And these data mm-hmm. points didn't exist before. So 
You don't think they'd throw it out. You think they'd go, we would have just done it better from what we've learned, right? Oh, yeah. Maybe. I mean, that's also a lesson for sure. I mean, but I, honestly, I don't think so. I, I, yeah, it's, it's a really tough question. I, personally, I, I don't think it, they jumped the gun. I think they didn't jump too early. Um, I think they should have done things a little bit different as we talked about it with the launch and with the, with the pricing and the naming. And, um, I don't think it's a product that AMD is like thinking that AMD thinks it's bad. I don't think they're. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because, um, I believe the last broken silk and I had to read her mail a, a couple, actually, I, if, it, if it wasn't a couple, it was at least one. And then in the Moore's Law's Dead Discord, you can see in the reader mail channels, which are like, you know, people can't, uh, like, you can't respond easily and you can't, uh, you can't, you can only submit it like once every six hours in the reader mail channels. So these are yeah. the Discord channels for submitting questions, but people can't upvote them. And there was a question like, "Does a how does AMD regard their GPU division?" It was like massively upvoted. So I'm like, "Well, people will definitely want us to read this one." And the general feeling I got from like the emojis used in the upvoting was that a lot of people think that it wouldn't be surprising if AMD's higher ups regarded Radeon as like a underperforming team. And when I I, I was curious, I asked around like, well, "How do you guys regard Radeon?" and Everyone in the C, every engineer in the CPU areas or like server or whatever, we're like, no, we regard Radeon as a miracle. And even some people who know people higher up at AMD were like, they regard Radeon as miracle workers. I mean, we're talking about NVIDIA is a $1 trillion company now. AMD's market cap's worth, I believe, it, less than a fifth, maybe a sixth as much as NVIDIA. And yet one part of that company is competing with NVIDIA with like 20% plus market share or something. Like, I think people need to understand like they, they still see RDNA three as like having a lot of merit. It's selling fine. And well, we wish it performed better. Again, AMD has a 24 gigabyte card that is selling for like 30% less than NVIDIA's 16 gigabyte card. And it actually probably costs about the same to make, if not a little less. So it's not bad. No, you know? it's not bad, no. But does NVIDIA still have the right idea? So I want to move on to another section of like the prepared stuff. I, I I wanted to start with like NVIDIA's dilemma of chiplets and like what went on with RDNA 3 because it's just so fascinating to me when I um, heard, uh, I, I guess I of course can't say which people it was, but decently high up at NVIDIA talking to me about like why they insist on not using chiplets. And it, it all comes down to, well, it's always better for laptop. And we have to remember NVIDIA's laptop graphics market share is crazy higher than AMD's. We're not talking 70% of the market, we're talking like 90%. And so they want most of their lineup to fit into a laptop. They want efficiency because of that. Mm -hmm. And they also use these chips for so many different areas that AMD doesn't. Like AMD isn't selling remotely as many professional chips. So if you have one die, you can disable it into a bunch of different options, and you're going to need to anyways. And that's why they're staying monolithic. And well, you know, just like I leaked a schematic for what RDNA 4, big RDNA 4 looked like, I have seen an early one for what a multi-chip NVIDIA thing could be. It's not nearly as ambitious as AMD in terms of 
design, although it looks massive. You know, so I know NVIDIA is considering chiplets, but still the general consensus seems to be, nah, not worth it. Especially not if gamers are going to start rejecting $2,000 graphics cards because it'll cost way too much. But I don't know. Do you think NVIDIA is the right idea to keep doing this, especially after we've seen the issues AMD is having or not? Because I do find it interesting seeing AMD cancel an elaborate chiplet design. The second one they were going to make after RDNA 3, or I should say the first one after RDNA 3, right after NVIDIA basically gave me a long laundry list of reasons they think chiplets are stupid for GPUs. And these are the reasons AMD seems to be canceling big (laughs) RDNA 4. I I wonder if you have any thoughts on if NVIDIA has the right idea or like why maybe AMD isn't thinking the same thing NVIDIA is right now. It's just a different situation. I think it's it's important to differentiate between AMD's gaming chips and their HPC lineup, and because they're fundamentally different. And if you look at, at NVIDIA's gaming lineup, like for example, um, probably Blackwell will be the next one. We don't really know if Blackwell, or I don't really know if Blackwell will be the name for the HPC and the gaming mm-hmm. lineup like with Ampere or if they will split it again by names. But if you look at, at Blackwell, which I would call the next generation gaming chips, um, I feel right now AMD is uh, NVIDIA is in a really comfortable spot. They don't need chiplets. I mean, look at the at 8102, at the RTX 4090. Um, the current rumors or current situation is that there probably won't be a 4090 Ti or at least anytime soon. So... And let the record show when I leaked that Titan yeah. cooler, I said, I don't think they're going to launch this. <laughs> and it you know, was I the, think they could, but they're it not was going the right to. cooler with the connector at the right place. So, mm-hmm. um, and this, this huge chip, um, NVIDIA is producing, but the RTX 4090 is like binned by 11%. It's like only 89% of the chip is active. So yes, it's a huge chip, but I think NVIDIA can probably use almost all of them because they're binned by so much. So they, they reduce the yield problems by just having these massive chips. And because they get this much performance out of these massive chips, they can't just say, well, um, we're going to sell them for a high price and bin them down. And if AMD isn't able to compete, if AMD isn't pressuring NVIDIA and releasing a full die, there, there, there's no real pressure on NVIDIA itself. And um, NVIDIA is for sure looking into chiplets, like more than looking. I mean... You talked about it, and there's public research online. Um, I talked mm-hmm. about it in my last video. And if you look at the papers, it's not just some interns at NVIDIA. It's like, you know, it's like head of departments. It's head, like they're, they're really important people from NVIDIA. Their names are on these papers. So they're researching them. They have test chips. Um, and NVIDIA definitely knows that at some point in the future, and it's really interesting um, that you talked about the reticle limit size change um, with high mm-hmm. and A2. I remember watching a video from you. I think that was the point where you said, like, what about um, the reticle change? And then someone in video said, well, maybe we're going to make smaller chips. And that only works if AMD thinks the same. Mm. Because reducing the reticle size, like, um, just to reiterate for everyone watching, like, some po- somewhere after N2, or we don't really know yet, after 2025, 2026, new machines will be needed, high in A, high numerical aperture, aperture machines, and they reduce the reticle size, the maximum die size you can produce if you want the monolithic chips, but literally 50%. I think from 585 um, square millimeters down to 429 square millimeters. 
mm-hmm. which is like literally half the size. And um, that means your chips, like even if you're going to produce a 400 millimeter square chip, which is possible, suddenly you're going to produce a chip that's at the radical limit and that's going to be mm. super expensive with low yields. So yeah. NVIDIA would have need to go down to like 300 millimeter squared um, square millimeters. <laughs> Or, or whichever. No, no, yeah. and that's an important thing to point out because I think the reticle limit is usually between like 800 and 850 something. Yeah. And the only one that really got crazy close is Titan Volta that I think was 815. Like that's the closest they've gotten. Typically, they want to be at least 10% smaller than the reticle limit because yeah. it, it it's kind of a runaway effect in bad yields the closer you get to the max reticle limit. So yeah, so you say 429, that would be about the same die size as a 1080 Ti, yeah. but you're like, yeah, but they'll they'll probably stop at like 350 then or something, right? Yeah. Or maybe even lower. And if AMD says, well, we're not going to do that, we're going to have two 250 millimeter um, dies together, that's going to be a problem. So NVIDIA knows that at some point you have to deal with chiplets because for me high and a is like it's this wall for every design that's not chiplet based you're going to mm-hmm. run into it and of course if you do small notebook chips they're not going to be affected because you're not nowhere nowhere um near the reticle limit but for everything high end and especially for hpc which is currently already sitting at the reticle limit and um, it's it's a wall and if you if you're not ready for that you're going to crash i think yeah, the only- will be ready but yeah, well, I know they're already working on a version of Blackwell that's multiple chips. So again, I don't think it's going to be something that's like, you know, 10 different chiplets. It's probably just going to look like MI250X, probably something like that, um, which might be enough. And, and I also wonder if there is a chance here if they aren't, if they're not ready to do what AMD was going to do with Navi 41, which is to say tons of GCDs stacked together. I think there's some time they could buy on two nanometer if they have like one 400 millimeter squared chip and then they just have as much of the cash separated as possible and then die stacked on top. De facto, you're kind of able to get up to the same overall die size as what we would have now. But that's only going to work for like one or two generations before AMD's still just making things bigger than you can. Um, you know what I would say though is I, I think we do have to acknowledge why NVIDIA has different incentives than AMD. We've already talked about how they service more of the professional, they have more uh, market share in laptop, they're even making AI versions of their gaming chips. Like I think some of them they'll disable most of the CUDA cores and it's like all the tensor cores, that type of stuff. AMD doesn't have that ability to siphon off one dine to 10 different products and that's why it doesn't really matter what yields you have, you need them anyways. Um, but there's another thing here I think with NVIDIA which is they're in the lead and when you're in the lead people expect you to execute. And it is obvious, uh, my understanding is they wanted RDNA 3 out in like September last year. And then there were issues. And then they said, okay, well, we have to have it out by Black Friday. And in fact, they teased it November 3rd. That's because they were hoping to announce next week it launches Black Friday. Still didn't even launch until December and it had issues. I think when you're in the lead, there's it's even more imperative that you just Every two years, it comes out on time, it works, there's no issues. Like, because when you're in the lead, people will pay extra. And I think NVIDIA realizes that, like, they can't let what happened to RDNA 3 happen to one of their launches, where it's, like, drawn out and confusing, because nobody's going to let them put up with that. 
especially when they have all these contracts that are writing themselves. Like people will buy NVIDIA. They're in the lead. All of their customers are ready to buy every year. It's not like AMD where they're worried they'll switch. So getting out on time is more important. And I almost wonder like if a good way to contrast this is like imagining if Intel was competent. Like what if Intel had his shit together? Like my understanding was there was an eight core ice like desktop plan to launch in like I think 2018. So what if Intel was firing on all cylinders like NVIDIA and AMD still would have taken some market share. You can only go up from zero, but what if against Zen plus Intel had a 4.5 gigahertz ice like eight core with 20% higher IPC than what they actually had at the time. And they would have had a product 30% better than AMD and even Zen two and then what if they had an eight core Tiger Lake past five gigahertz in 2019? That was the original plan. AMD would have had this 4.5 gigahertz 16 core competing with a 5.5 gigahertz eight core that has thir- like 30% higher single threading performance. And then and so on and so forth. Like if all of these things would have followed on time. Well, I mean, heck, Canon Lake never even basically came out. What if they had an eight, a six core Canon Lake? on 10 nanometer against Zen 1. I mean, that would have, they would have won. So I do think it's worth pointing out the difference. Like, Intel made the arguments that NVIDIA is making now, but they also weren't competent, so it looked stupid. Meanwhile, NVIDIA's bets are paying off. I I think we have to acknowledge that. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And NVIDIA, I mean, all you have to do is look at the stock price. I mean, the stock price is not always... Uh, the right indication, but I think for NVIDIA, if the stock price went up after their earnings blow out. So if you if you have your earnings call and you just say, well, we made 20% more and we're going to raise um, our expectation for the rest of the year. Um, NVIDIA, NVIDIA is focused on GPUs. Maybe that's one of the reasons because NVIDIA is a company mm-hmm. and doesn't have this. I mean, they have grace. For sure, it's a, it's a CPU, and they they dabbled in this area. But um, AMD is much larger company, not in terms of of uh, market capitalization in market cap, but more in terms of what kind of product range they offer. And AMD does CPUs, AMD does APUs, AMD does GPUs, AMD does this for every market. And it's a smaller company, and the attention is divided. Into more into more areas, so mm-hmm. um, maybe that's also one of the reasons that Nvidia can consistently um, perform. Yeah, I mean, uh, Nvidia's earnings are actually probably going to come out. Their latest quarterly earnings will drop, I think, a day after this podcast mm-hmm. comes out. Um, so I'd probably stay away from talking about it too much because why say anything big right before oh, yeah. it's going to be public? Anyway, has no idea. <laughs> I, I actually hear they're. Well, we'll see. This will be interesting. I'll say this because if this ended up wrong, it'd be interesting. But from what I hear, the graphics earnings are actually going to be, in some regions, better than expected. It, it's a, I, I still think that like if you look in North America, they seem to clearly be down relative to where they want them to be. But sales are picking up, just like they're picking up for everything. It does seem like the tech sector has bottomed and is starting to come back up. And I hear that actually their sales for like 4060 and 4060 Ti in China are very good. And if so if we see their graphics earnings a day after this comes out publicly, you know, surprising. It's apparently because in China they want their efficient 4060 and 4060 Ti's. 
And in China, they don't really play a lot of games that need more than eight gigabytes of RAM. So I think yeah. NVIDIA's like shifted their stock that way. But, but, you know, I just wanted to say that quick. Let, let, let me shift to this question, though. Um, getting out and enjoying the weather, or is it too hot to get outside? Well, either way, whether you're looking for an easy meal on the go or something quick and delicious while you're cooped up inside, Vite Ramen has you covered. This piece of content is brought to you by Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a healthy, tasty, and shelf-stable food crafted by an American startup that offers tons of options for eating healthy. Their classic packages make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice, including new flavors like Radiant Crab Ryu. And also, their Ramen Go packages offer a healthy, microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15-minute lunch break away from home. Or they even have other healthy products like Nano Boost Powder that makes any food at least a little healthy click on the link in the description and use the offer code broken silicon to save 10 percent on a variety of products including special bundles for moore's law z fans raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipes and other food products powders cooking utensils and more they are a plucky small but rapidly growing company that has been good to moore's law is dead for years so you know supporting them helps support me and even just clicking on the link below makes a big difference for moore's law is dead but I really do like their products, and I recommend you try them as well. So check out Vite Ramen today. Really? Gonna keep the glasses on for more than a minute? Zaybeat03 writes in and asks, Do you think consumers will be happy with another RDNA-1-like generation? And, and, and I, I want to just set the stage for this a little bit here. Because I do think there's a fundamental underestimating of navi 43 and 44 could be wrong but when i think about them designing this like moonshot generation that was supposed to beat nvidia i don't know why you'd have this giant two thousand dollar chip and then conceivably some nine hundred dollar navi 42 and make 43 and 44 small i i'd why why would you make these chips small there's no point these chips are so big and you have all this oversupply like if you don't meet 3070 Ti performance. There's no point in launching it. I mean, we have so many 3070s, 3060s, 6700 XTs. Yeah. And from what I hear, just a mountain of 6600 XTs still in stock. Why make anything weak? So I, I think people are underestimating that if they went to three nanometer or even four with a monolithic chip, a 250 millimeter squared die could probably beat the 4070 Ti or something if they wanted to make that. Um, but do you think people would be happy that with that? Like, I, And I'm wondering... What level of performance people would be happy with, with let's say $500 mid-range chip out of AMD next year? Like, What does it need to be to be successful? And then do you think that's enough, though? They don't need anything better. I can tell you that I would be happy with it. Like We, we talked about RDNA 1 before in this video a little bit and the RX 5700 XT. And for me, RDNA 1... like was AMD's comeback into the GPU market. And mm -hmm. not only, not really based on performance, I mean, they didn't compete in the high end, but also compared on power efficiency. It was an efficient design. Um, AMD was always behind before in power efficiency. And suddenly, mm -hmm. RDNA 1 actually compete very, competed very favorably with NVIDIA um, when it came to power efficiency. And they had this card which exactly knew what it was. You know, it was dialed in on the RTX um, 2070, it performed a little bit better. It didn't have ray tracing, yes, but it was also cheaper. And it was a very straightforward design. 
And mm -hmm. it forced NVIDIA to react for the first time in, in a long time. And the super generation was actually what the original um, um, RTX 20 series should have been, in my opinion. Like, yeah. um, they forced NVIDIA to basically switch the chips up one chip tier and have like a RTX 2060 with 8 gigabytes and a 2070 with like the higher tier chip. And mm -hmm. it was actually an impactful generation. And you can see that in NVIDIA's reaction. And the 57. Well, the funny thing is, I think Turing sales, uh, AMD actually took some market share that year, sure. largely because of RDNA 1 and also because, let's be honest, there was like an endless supply of $100.4070s. Oh. And those were selling like crazy. So AMD actually took market share that year. They didn't with RDNA 2. But also NVIDIA's sales started going up as well with Turing. You almost wonder if AMD did NVIDIA a small favor, like by making them fix their generation, people started buying Turing, which is which is interesting because I think NVIDIA has this mindset of like, well, if AMD can't compete, we can charge whatever we want. And while that's kind of true, people still just may not buy it, <laughs> like yeah. even if there's not a competitor. Like they're just going to say it's not worth it. And I think that kind of proved that, and Lovelace is proving that again. And imagine AMD releases a card that competes very well with the 5070 mm -hmm. for a reasonable price. Um, I think most people will love it. And you ask about what performance people want. I think if you get like RTX 3090 Ti performance, that's like but, a level that most people will be happy with. And with probably, you know, better geometry and ray yeah. tracing performance, yeah. like generally doing better in the newest stuff. I agree. That's what I think. I think that there's a certain threshold where there's no point in launching a new card um, unless it's dirt cheap. And that is about 3080. Like it's been done to death. No one cares if you aren't stronger than that. And I think there's still a lot of people sitting with their, well, <laughs> probably 1080 TIs. And uh, 5700 XTs and 2070s and 2060s that are looking at the current pricing and going, yeah, I mean, the 7900 XT is a 20 gigabyte card for 750. That's certainly better than a past few years, but I'm still just not, I just want something better. And if AMD could deliver, again, something that's about 4070 Ti performance or better, if they got to 4080, it'd be very good. And they were like, it's 500 bucks. And it does better ray tracing. I think I think people would much 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 rather have that. Anything above that though is gravy. Uh, and it's like if it's a forty ninety for six hundred, good. If it's a forty eighty for five fifty, good. If it's a forty seventy Ti for five hundred, good. But that around there is far more important. And I think it's more important also because I don't really know if the fifty ninety will do anything for gaming. Like no offense, the forty ninety kind of has because it's like broken all barriers which is interesting but after that the barrier has been broken we can do photorealism on a 4090 if it was programmed well but it's never going to be programmed well because no one can afford it so we need to take that and make it most people have it and then developers will actually make a game around that level of performance and i think i think the market just needs that right now far more than another two thousand dollar graphics card we need to get people up to a certain level where developers say, well, that's the baseline. That's what we can develop for. Mm -hmm. And if the, if the next generation delivers that, if it offers uh, mid-range performance, like current low, high-end performance for a reasonable price and as a good, at, at a good offering, um, I, I think that's, that's really 
you couldn't ask for more. Of course, you could ask for for Nabi four C, but um, yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting to think about this too because if you think about this generation, a lot of these cards like the forty sixty Ti, hopefully. It won't be, but it might be the same situation. The 7800 XT are like the same performance we had a couple of years ago at the same price two years later. But yes, it's more efficient, I guess. Um, it's really disappointing. Yeah. It is. In the mid-range, it's very disappointing. But then at the low end, well, you can get a 6700 XT for like $300. So that's cool. You can get a 6600 for 180 or 200 That's cool. And then at the high end, I think people are perfectly happy. They're like, well, the 4090s double last yeah. gen's performance for the same price. Yeah. The 7900 XTX is double six. Well, it's like 50% better than the 6900 XT, 35% better than the 6950 XT for the same price. So if you're, if you have the money, there's actually a few options from AMD and NVIDIA that make you happy. But in the middle, I wonder if AMD is also just like reading the tea leaves and going, next year, people are going to want mid range to be way better. And the people who are going to buy a high end card, uh, from my understanding, the 4090 is like the best selling over $1,000 card in history. Like, I think they've sold like three or 400,000. That's crazy okay, that's, that's that that many amount, people yeah. bought something that expensive. They're probably done. There, there might not be a high end market next year, anyways. It's something I wonder if AMD is suspecting as well. And it's, it's a tough call to, to beat the 4090 because you not only have to beat it, you have to be considerably faster for people to upgrade. Mm-hmm. And to be like, okay, last year I spent this much money. It has to be, it, it has to be like 30, 40% faster. And if you're not sure. Right. Because if you already bought a 4090, are you going to switch to AMD for 30% more performance? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I think it would have been more than that much faster, but then it would have been that much more expensive probably too. And, and well, I, I want to get into this though, because you, you brought up that, it, Nvidia can only afford to not make high-end cards, probably if AMD isn't. But AMD yeah. doesn't seem to be next year. Um, King Arkinian writes in and asks: With RDNA three versus Lovelace, Nvidia has downsized their dies to a scandalous degree, like eighty one hundred seven for the forty sixty, and using uh, eighty one hundred four for the forty seventy Ti. Heck, they almost tried to call it a forty eighty. Well, AMD has pushed for everything Navi thirty one could do with the XTX. And NVIDIA is clearly doing okay with the 4060 versus 7600 and the 4080 versus XTX. Despite putting so little effort in selling it for grossly inflated prices, NVIDIA has seemed to deal with AMD without a hitch. Is this a generational problem for AMD? Is this significant for the future? And that's something I want to bring up is like, we can insult NVIDIA or get mad at NVIDIA, I should say, for we're using 8107 for the 4060 and actually technically the 4060 is slightly cut down because some of its cache is disabled on desktop but the, and i think you did a video talking about how it's really yeah. the 4050 which it is um but at the same time it's competitive with the 7600 you know it is and if amd stops it say I, I i don't know how big navi 43 is going to be but let's say it's even 350 millimeters squared and then nvidia makes one 450 millimeters squared hard to compete with it like like how do you do you think like unless amd does something different nvidia is just going to do this sooner like with blackwell maybe they'll stop making high-end cards and like how do you feel about that type of a potential future i don't really think that's going to happen i do think they're both going to compete in 2025 with high-end but how do you think that would feel if the generations just were stopping at 50 80 
and maybe every now and then an 8800 or 8700 XT, and then that was it? That's a really interesting question. Um, if I personally wouldn't be really affected because I never bought an ultra high-end card, mm-hmm. but if you if you look at the market, if it's actually more like a cat and mouse game because one company has to be sure that the other company won't compete. It has to be sure because um, if NVIDIA decides, okay, we're not going to go for the ultra high end and AMD does, that's going to create a problem for NVIDIA. Mm-hmm. I think it's not going to be a problem the other way around because AMD doesn't have uh, the market share leadership. And again, the branding issues and AMD is more constable. People don't expect AMD to have the winning card and have mm. the fastest card available. Um, but yeah, I, NVIDIA's reason could be, could be different. NVIDIA could say, well, we're an AI company now. We make our money with AI and HPC chips. And mm-hmm. um, if we can get produce more of AI and HPC chips in next generation, if we cut down our, our high-end gaming chips in this area, um, then it's, it's, it's a consideration to make. And I don't think mm-hmm. Jensen will will think twice if someone tells him, well, we could make $5 billion more if we cut down our next-generation gaming cards um, to produce more HPC and AI chips. So, um, and if NVIDIA knows AMD is not going to compete at that level, um, that could actually be a future. I think we talked about before we, we started the recording that maybe mm-hmm. the future is that um, gaming cards won't be produced in the bleeding edge in the newest nodes. Mm-hmm. Because that's going to be yeah, and I, I suspect that Navi forty four is not on the latest yeah. node. Yeah, and AMD is doing. I mean, not Navi thirty three is an N six design. It's it's not N five, and we're at a time right now where actually N three is the newest node. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe the future for us gamers will be that we have to take a step back and be content with not getting the the newest stuff, the latest um, stuff. Um, that could be a, certainly that could be a future, not a, not a cool future for gaming. Um, but if everything else, if big money is taking over and taking all the capacity, then I don't think we gamers can compete at least like I can't with my wallet. Well, you know, I, I think, um, I, I, my suspicion right now, and I haven't, again, I'm just kind of thinking of this on the fly here. Like if AMD really is going to stop, at you know let's say the 8700 xt next year like they have an 8700 xt for five to six hundred an 8700 for like 450 and so on and so forth down the stack my suspicion would be especially because like blackwell's already designed so they've they've got a high-end design is they're gonna say well we're not using chiplets next year because we don't need to for Mm -hmm. gamers and on top of that They'll probably make the 5090 a really cut down top die. <laughs> like my guess is like, if you actually go and look at it, the 3090, I think was cut down by like only 4%. And the 5090, or I'm sorry, 4090 is cut down by, I believe 12%. Yeah, it, wouldn't, 12, surpri- yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if next gen NVIDIA is like, it's cut down 20%. This is the worst yields, but it doesn't matter because, you know, our 103 die is already stronger than their top card anyways. And we don't need anything better. If AMD ever tries, we we can launch a Titan if we want to. And maybe they'll launch a Titan yeah. that costs $3,000 for the people that want it. But that that's my guess. Is like, And also all those leaked coolers is they're just trying out ideas so that whenever they want a Titan again, they have a cooler ready to go. 
you know, my, my guess is that's probably what's going to happen next year. And then moving forward after that, we're just going to have to find out if AMD actually goes for it again. But Chris Rich writes in and he asks, do you think price and price performance are taken seriously enough by most of the gaming public? When people talk about Moore's Law, they're quick to point out the performance improvements, but the cost improvements are rarely mentioned. If the price to performance of silicon only slowly improves and chip designers don't try to mitigate against that, then consumers will see a slow rate of improvement and will respond by buying less frequently or not at all, won't they? That leads me to think this market will just start shrinking with less enthusiasm, which I don't think is good for anybody. And I do think this is worth talking about. I've seen some really crazy comments as usual online, but specifically like, oh, the 7900 XTX should be $500. How can you say it should? I'm like, guys, I don't think it's making a profit at 500. <laughs> like it, they would be out of, there will be no Radeon if they charged $500 for that. And do you think people don't appreciate this enough that like, my, I, my understanding is the 4090 really does cost like $900 to make. Like mm -hmm. it has a lot of RAM, the fastest RAM. It's cooler costs hundreds of dollars alone. It's board is this compact, crazy thing. And do you think people appreciate that? Like some of these cards, not all of them, <laughs> but some of these cards really do cost that much to make. I think for a consumer, it's really hard to understand all the work that goes in such a chip. And especially if we, if you follow the price increase over the past couple of years. So we, you know, I, I vividly remember a time where like a, a 70 card would cost like 300, $350 and an mm -hmm. 80 card would be like 500, $550. And then you had like a TI or a Titan at like $800. And it feels like we had this, this run up to these ultra high prices in such a short time and people didn't really have have time to adapt to the new reality because it, mm -hmm. it kind of was overwhelming new generation like you look at the prices and maybe you 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 thought you're going to buy high end or or upper high end and suddenly you're like I'm not really in the market for mid range right now because if I look at the prices you know people spending $400 you want to buy a a 4070ti or something like that suddenly you you feel left out and that's that's hard to understand, especially if you look at companies and they they, they post record profits. So mm -hmm. um, I, I can understand it from the consumer side, um, but where I geek out a little bit is when it comes, for example, to the forty ninety to the eighty one zero two chip. I did like a, a a video on it, and it's actually crazy how many transistors this chip had, has, how big it is, um, how much on-die cache it has, um, all, the, all the work that went into this chip. And it's, it's over 600 uh, square millimeters, so it's actually a pretty large chip for a consumer product. And then the, the memory design, like you have the um, TDDR6X, which has to be really close to the die. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, you need like I think it's PAM four or like it's yeah it's a, yeah um, because of the connections and then I mean it's a high power card so you need a really intense VRM system and you need a quality cooler and we, we, things get more mo more complex over time and things get more expensive and it's it's an exponential curve so if you want to get high end cards. They're growing at an exponentially fast rate when it comes to price and when it comes to cost to produce them. And you cannot expect the general consumer to understand that. It's there's a YouTube. One second. I'll be back here. I want to make a, a point.
Yeah. I have to just look through here because I'm not done unpacking. All right. So, anyways, the point I wanted to make, though, is if we go back, here is a GTX 5080. It's actually the three gigabyte version, the one that would still run some modern games. You know, this was a flagship, people. Doesn't look that fancy. This now would be considered a dirt cheap craft cooler. This is a 660 Ti. <laughs> look at this junk. This is what we used to consider upper mid range or lower high end cards that looked like this. This is a 3050. <laughs> it looks better than both of them. <laughs> and this is one of the cheaper 3050s. Yeah. So I just want to make that point though when we talk about these cards, because you know, I certainly remember when you could get a 7970 for five hundred dollars when the 670 was four hundred. But this is what a 670 would often look like. <laughs> and I don't think people have even appreciated like how much better they are, just period. Like how many like install it? I don't know how much you remember this, but going well, you said re, you know, TNT, and you know, I, I can appreciate a lot of those. Um, how much nicer do graphics cards look right now compared to when you remember getting them? And not just look like the components on the board, the all the materials, all the individual chips. I remember cards back in the day, like I couldn't do it, but people could actually like like fix them themselves because you could buy like a, a capacitor or a memory chip and solder them onto the board and it was fixed. And if you look at today's cards, uh, what kind of at what of kind of engineering level they are, um, especially if you look at the high end. But on the other hand, if if you if you're buying like a 4060 with a really tiny chip, a tiny die, a little bit of RAM, and for a huge amount of money, it's. I think there's a this. I think the high end, the current high end, is a really is is in a great spot. The 4090 is a really great offering. You pay a lot of money, but you get a amazing GPU. And the further down you go, the stack, I feel like the worse the offerings are. I feel like Nvidia put all the effort into the high end and said, well, for the low end, maybe, maybe we have to go back to, to smaller coolers. Maybe we have to go back to cards that don't look that good mm -hmm. and offer something that's like, that's like actually entry level. Also, not, not only um, from the SKU and the name, but also from like the looks. Yeah, I mean, and that brings up another thing too of like, like I, I've seen people talk about like, well, you know, if they can't make some of these cards cheaper, um, and some of them they could. Some of these cards I do believe have been designed in a way that's very wasteful. Like the 4080 doesn't need a 4090 cooler, guys. No. But at the same time, I've seen people go, well, you know, they should have just kept making. For example, yeah, they'll say, well, why don't they just keep making like a 2060 or a 1650 instead of making these other low-end cards? And I don't think people understand. Those would cost more to make now. <laughs> like, because the, the shipping costs have gone up. Prices general, yeah. And actually, the newer nodes are usually cheaper overall per transistor that might change with three nanometer you know that actually might change but they you know the only thing they could really do is take a 3060 or i guess 5060 and use a cooler like this and i think they should 
right. I think it's time to stop trying to sell people that like a 3050 is a high end card because it has RGB. Yeah. But outside of that, we, I do think we have to admit the drivers work a lot better and the cards do look a lot nicer. And they are of higher quality and there's more engineering work and put into them. It takes a lot more engineering time to tape out a current node and implement mm-hmm. a current memory system than it did just five years ago or even 10 years ago. Like, um, of course, yeah, prices are going up for a reason and not, not only greed. There's other factors. But there is greed, right? Yeah, it's for sure. Like, there is. And, and I understand it's like you look at the 4090 and you're like, this is ridiculous. It's like, well, that one actually... They're making a big profit on it, but it's not as big as you think. Um, from what I hear, the forty eighty that one really is an absurd profit margin. <laughs> like it's you a know, so chip. it's a smaller chip. Bfish writes in and asks: News of the high end of RDNA four being canceled and Nvidia being Nvidia got me to thinking. Right now, Micro Center has a seventy nine hundred XT reference edition for seven fifty with a free copy of Starfield. That makes it effectively the launch price of the sixty eight hundred XT. And well, yes. We might get that level of performance for less than two years. Is it just me, or is this almost too good of a deal to pass up? And I, I asked this question to kind of springboard into, you know, we'll see what happens. I, of course, still hear AMD might launch Navi 4C. It's a very, very single-digit remote uh, percentage remote chance from what I hear, but it could happen. And, you know, who knows what happens with high-end Blackwell and RDNA 5 for sure at this point. There's still time for them to change their minds or do different things. But right now... Is now honestly not a bad time to get a new graphics card, though, when you have, like, with Starfield, a 7900 XT for 750 and you can get entry, le- well, not even last-gen mid-range cards for 200 bucks. I think in the real middle, like, the 4070 area, it's bad, but isn't there it now actually probably a decent time to buy? I, I feel like 750 was a price where I saw the 7900 XT, um, like when it launched, I was like, "Why isn't it 750? Mm-hmm. And why it wasn't it 899? I think that was the yes, official, it was 899 MSRP, <laughs> and 899 was just it, it was too close to the XTX, and it 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 was too high. And I I remember thinking back then, 750 is an area where I think it's still an expensive card. 750 dollars is a lot of money, um, but if you are going to buy Starfield and you are in the market for a current upper high-end card i mean it's not enthusiast it's not 4090 um, or xtx level but if you're um, in the market for that and you have a gpu from maybe rdna1 or um, rtx20 series and Mm -hmm. you you have a decent uplift in performance I, i think that's actually a a good offering yeah and it's all relative, right? Like we can talk about when things were better than other times. Um, like for example, I think 10 years ago in 2013, prices were incredible (laughs) for the outside of the Litecoin mining boom. But I mean, they were just, I I remember, I think, I think my brother in late 2012 or 20, yeah, I think late 2012 or something got an HD seven nine fifty, which was the equivalent kind of of the seventy nine hundred XT today, yeah. for like three hundred fifty bucks or three hundred dollars, and it came with like the new like Far Cry, the newest Far Cry and Hitman and something else. Like, yes, things were better, but at the same time, even just five years ago, Nvidia was trying to sell you twenty eighty Ti's for thirteen hundred dollars, and 
the best high end card from AMD was actually an over a seven hundred dollar Radeon Seven. So yeah. I, I think in the past five years now it's just pretty good in general. Though I, maybe the future will be worse, but now you know if you're worried if the future is going to be worth worse, then I think now is kind of the time to jump on one of them. Especially since we are like at least a year away from the next generation, and mm-hmm. prices have been gone down, and um, if especially these these bundles, that's something really interesting because AMD does these bundles too, and you usually can only activate the codes if you also have an AMD card. And for the past uh, generations, I've been buying these codes on eBay for low money, and because I have a AMD card, I could activate them. So mm-hmm. I got like uh, I think I got um, the um, Uncharted Four, and mm-hmm. what is the dark uh, the Death Base competitor, the Callisto Protocol? I think it was a bundle or something. I got it for like mm-hmm. thirty bucks on eBay and um, got it to activate. And I mean, games are getting more expensive. And if it's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a top star field bundle. I think it's not a, it's not a standard version too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think like the seventy six hundred comes with the standard star field. Yeah. Which to be fair, that's actually a pretty crazy deal too. You're getting yeah. a seventy dollar game with a two seventy dollar card, but the top ones actually come with like the premium version with I think all the DLC or something, which is probably like a hundred bucks or something. And if mm-hmm. you if you actually want to buy that, and I guess a lot of people want to buy it, um, and you're in the market for a new GPU, and you're actually paying like six fifty for a seven nine hundred XT, that's not a bad deal, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. yeah, and I'd say as long as price to performance gets better every year by at least twenty to thirty percent, and we have this performance or better, I don't think things are going to be bad. I just think they were bad when they were trying to sell you. A 3070 Ti for $1,000. <laughs> I mean, that, uh, you know, that's when it was really, really, really bad um, to the point that it got worse than previous gen price performance. But so far, I think we have to acknowledge that once prices have gone down, yeah. uh, we are well beyond that. I, I um, have to tell you a story about how I got my 6800, RX 6800. So please. I bought the 5700 XT at launch for like 450 euros. I bought this Sapphire Nitro Plus or something, like because I wanted a new GPU. And then, a year later, um, the graphics card prices started to rise, and we got the GPU shorted. And suddenly, the cards were going for 700, 800 euros on eBay. But like, why would I sell it? I needed it, f- like for my PC, of course. And then, to some really like, it was really luck. I got a RX 6800 um, from a from a um, German um, seller. I think Mind, Mind Factory is the biggest German retailer. And I got it for like 850 euros, which was way off above MSRP. But at the same time, I could sell my 5700 XT for, I think, the 857 euros on eBay. So after eBay um, money, I, because you have to pay some fee to eBay, yeah. I, paid like, I paid like 70 euros to upgrade from the 5700 XT to the 6800, which uh, was a decent, a decent switch. Yeah, I mean, the craziest one that I have from last gen was I had a Radeon 7, and I had no intention of selling that. I mean, I thought that uh, my favorite color is red, and I thought that shade of red looked really cool. Yeah. But during the mining boom, there was someone, and it was near the end of it, too, I believe. It was like, uh, well, I, not near the end of it, but, you know, it was like mid-2021 or something. It, it was like clear to me that things were going to change by yeah. then. 
and they were willing to buy it for two thousand dollars on eBay. Okay, and I'm like, and then I had access to a founder's edition of the thirty seventy for six hundred bucks, and I'm like, I'll pay a hundred dollars over MSRP if it means I can sell this for two grand. And sure enough, by the way. The person didn't say anything who was buying it, but once they got it, they sent me a picture of it in a mining rig with a thumbs oh, yeah. up, like it works great. And I'm like, the right, right man. It. <laughs> I just hope you know you're you're not going to make your money back on that. But, but okay, you know. Um, but yeah, that God, that was such crazy times. All right, I, I actually um, want to switch gears here. Um, what we still have some time yeah. to more of the Intel conversation. Um, Jamwop writes in and says, Hey, high yield, your video explaining Meteor Lake was incredibly informative. Do you think that Intel will try to leverage this new tile architecture to convince NVIDIA to start manufacturing tiles for them? We know TSMC is very secretive with its knowledge. Maybe Intel will say, Hey, we have this tile design that has proven to work in Meteor Lake and beyond. We want to make sure your chip designs work too. Oh, so he's also just suggesting like they'd work together on that. Well, I don't think they're going to share each other's chiplet <laughs> research with each other. Um, I, would you agree with me? I don't, I think I, I don't think they would share the chiplet research, but if you look at um, the implementation, if you look at Forest, the technology um, behind um, Meteor Lake, um, I, I would compare it to TSMC sharing their Colvos or, or other packaging and, and interconnect technologies. So I could definitely see that. And I mean, Intel is trying to push hard towards their foundry business. They're investing a lot of money and they're building a new fab in Germany and they're getting a lot of money, a lot of subsidies, but they're building new fabs and they have this goal um, of, of being a, like a, being a really uh, big competition in the foundry market. And mm-hmm. if they want to offer that, if they're actually serious about that, not only do their new notes have to be on point, like 20A, 18A and the mm-hmm. upcoming or like Intel 3, Intel 4 is more like the node for Intel internally, and Intel 3 is the node that's also available for Foundry. Yes. I think it's the same with AMD. Yeah, 4 is like a half step. Yeah. Um, also, the way I've heard it described is Intel 4 and Intel 20A. They're not just like the internal node, but they're not, and I don't remember all the details. It's a bit over my head, to be honest. They're not really ideal for making all types of tiles. Like it's only for like logic tiles. Yeah, they don't. And then they've done all of the remaining design rules for every other type of product you can make on it for three. So it's not just like it's meant for outside users. My understanding is Intel 4 and Intel 28 literally can only make certain types of tiles too. Yeah, your understanding is right. It's like they're like some certain type of libraries for certain type of transistors. And mm-hmm. I think they're also kind of a pipe cleaner for Intel to see, like, does it work? Is it actually at a point where you want it to be? And then they go the next step. And, and they need to, to execute on this. But they also need to offer uh, uh, interesting packaging technologies around it. Of course, you can always fab your, your chips at Intel and ta- then take them to Amcor or like another packaging mm-hmm. provider. But um, it's always more interesting to offer the whole package. Because mm-hmm. you can work with your clients and you're like, okay, this is our node and we have the perfect packaging and interconnect technology for you to use with it. And um, in the future, I feel like um, we're moving towards a point where packaging is becoming more and more important, especially when you regard like your channel's name, Moore's Law, um, if it's mm-hmm. actually in decline. And at some Which point... Jensen and Wayne agrees with me yeah. that... 
Moore's law is dead for everyone. And go on. If eventually um, the the node progress will be smaller and smaller, and it doesn't really matter who has the best node right now because all nodes are in a ballpark of each other. The most important part will be who has the best packaging, who has the mm-hmm. best solution to stack um, the best interconnect with the lowest um, the lowest um, energy consumption per bit, picojoules per bit, the, the lowest um, the best heat transfer. Mm. Um, that's going to be the most important um, aspect in the future, like actually looking a couple of years into the future. And right. it's all for that. So I think, so I guess what I was trying to say too before is it's like, I don't think Global Foundries and Samsung combined research on the next node because TSMC was so far ahead, <laughs> they had to. I don't think Intel's going to co-develop too much with nvidia so much as like you said say well you can design tiles with us and we know how to do it but if they do do that though don't you think that would be years from now because in tsmc is already doing it and i think if you're nvidia you're looking at intel and you're going i know you claim to have tiles but uh Pontevecchio didn't exactly turn out well and sapphire rapids is late meteor lake is a bit late don't you think it though it would take like several generations before nvidia would look at them for the packaging versus tsmc for sure i think nvidia like in nvidia is is more agnostic when it comes to manufacturing i mean they switched to samsung before um with amd for sure they will stick with tsmc that's like a really special relationship like only Apple and AMD have like this super tight relationship with TSMC. But AMD and uh, NVIDIA, I, I could see them try other foundries, but it's it's way off. I mean, they said they have um test chips in was it 20 or 18A? I think I heard something about this. Um Jensen said something in, in Taiwan that they actually have test oh. chips. Well, I remember I uh, put out a leak a few years ago about how NVIDIA and Pat were already talking about, you know, working together in the future at some point. So test chips, that wouldn't surprise me at all. That's also like a a very common sense thing to do is to get some test chips done and say, hey, let's see if they can even do this at all. You know, I I didn't see that news, but I wouldn't doubt it at all. Yeah. And so it's not out of a question. But the biggest draw towards TSMC is that they're agnostic. They're not a competitor. And yes, I think Intel is is a company that you can trust. I mean, they're, it's, they're a big company in their business relationships. But I think there's always a bigger bigger gap between um, fabbing at a competitor than compared to a fabbing at TSMC. And Intel first needs to prove their process notes too. Like so far, Intel is a lot of talk, and I'm really excited. I hope they, I hope um, Intel three and eighteen A will perform really well, and I hope they mm-hmm. have their their packaging and their interconnects um, on top and everything works flawlessly because we need more competition in the market. Um, but I'm not convinced yet. I actually need to see it to work. Um, yeah, because you know Meteor Lake's not even out yet. You know. And while I hear generally good things from people on the fab side of Intel, I'd still say I'd be pretty naive if I didn't say I have to see it to believe it after, well, really how delayed people don't talk about it as much because it wasn't an issue for them because they were so far in the lead at the time. But 14 nanometer was super late, you know, and then also 10 nanometer was. And while I hear good things, I don't just want to see Intel 4 with Meteor Lake come out on time. 
I want to see Granite Rapids launch in the first half of next year. And I want to see um, Arrow Lake launch at the end of the year on 28 to a laptop, which is what I hear they're going to use well for cheap laptop and some other parts like that. I want to see it happen on time. Um, I, I will say, though, you know, working with Intel, something that I've heard from some of my contacts. Also, I believe Daniel Nenny said this on the podcast, who's, you know, the founder of semiwiki.com. Uh, you can say they can air gap things and like, they won't share stuff, but everyone I've talked to like, like AMD, NVIDIA and other people, even, you know, like uh, various arm based companies say like even Apple are like, who did use Intel before once, like we're genuinely concerned if we make stuff at Intel that they will steal some of our ideas. And that's the thing is when you work with global foundries, or um, TSMC, and to some extent Samsung, although I hear it's a concern, but for a graphics card, it wouldn't be, by the way. Like, TSMC's not going to do anything with it because they don't make, they're not competing with you. And this really is a thing that I don't bring up, but people I talk to bring up. Like, why would they not use Intel? And I'm like, oh, is it because they need to prove themselves? And someone always says, oh, also they don't trust Intel. (laughs) Like, I think this really is a thing where, like, for example... I talked to someone at NVIDIA a couple months ago, like, would you guys ever make the GPU chiplets for Intel's stuff? Like, cause that'd be pretty cool if like, you know, Panther Lake had an NVIDIA graphics tile on it. And they said, we would totally consider that. But the only way we would consider that is if we think AXG is so far behind that it doesn't matter if they steal stuff from us, they're never yeah. going to catch up. Like they they want to watch AXG crash and burn, and but I've heard some people at Nvidia say we're waiting. Like if AXG gets completely axed, we're gonna just show up the next day and say we have a solution for you. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I think um, there is a lot of concern about corporate espionage though with some of these companies. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be immediately. All it needs that like some of the knowledge, some of the the problems you fixed. Um, they, they they get into the right ha- into the wrong hands from mm-hmm. from the f- point of view of the customers and um, the, the, in the high end space, that's always a concern. So, um, like I said, TSMC being agnostic, not a competitor. It's that's a, a, a big value point um, if you want to fab with them. Like Intel needs to prove themselves mm-hmm. to a point where you're like. I could see Xilinx, like an FPGA or something, switch first, even mm-hmm. though Intel wants to compete in that space too right now. So <laughs> you see all the problems popping up. So yeah, I agree with you. It's Well, and also let's point this out. Like this was a video a while ago, but I heard, like I asked, like what's with the 108 dies? Like where's, why was there never a GA 108? Why oh, yeah. did you never make like an MX550 that was its own die? Because I thought, Pascal's 108 dive, which for people who don't know, that was used for the GT 1030 and the MX 150. I thought that, like, I think it was 80 millimeter squared die was actually like really competitive. It was like they used like 15 watts and was like 20, 50 percent better than competing in integrated graphics. I'm like, it seems to me like AMD used Vega for a little too long in APUs, and Intel just basically used Tiger Lake forever. I think you could have just made a 1024 CUDA core Ampere die or, or 1500 probably. And it would have been cool. Like, why didn't you? And they said, well, they thought AMD would go to RDNA on an APU sooner. They okay. had, no, 
bigger issue, they thought for sure Intel would update their graphics from basically Ice Lake way. They're basically not doing it until Meteor Lake. And that would have been an opening where they're like, if hindsight was 2020, a contact told me maybe we would have made a 108 ampere die for laptops, but we just assumed it was too late. And there was no point to making small dies anymore because of how good APUs are getting. But if NVIDIA was using Intel's nodes, Intel may have looked and said, oh, NVIDIA's not making 108 dies anymore. If we beef up our APUs, we have a huge opening here. So it's not even so much stealing information. If Intel knows they're making an NVIDIA product one year, they know what they're competing with. And they might not have before. That's something I didn't think about, yeah. And so tape out to product is a long time. And before the tape out, you start talking to the fab. So it's actually more like one and a half years mm-hmm. before you would know if the certain product will be out or not. And that's ample time to react. Yeah. Well, so, but how do you, how are you feeling about Meteor Lake in general? Like, I, are you excited for it? How competitive do you think it's going to be? And for that matter, I mean, how good do you think uh, Phoenix is going to be? I'm excited but I'm also a little bit on, on the edge, not really, not physically, but I, I, want, I want to see Meteor Lake to do well. Because I looked at, if I look at the design, if I look at the chiplet layout, um, and especially like the whole 3D stacked architecture, where you have like an interposer, which can also be active. I mean, you've talked about Adamantin, the, the cache, which mm-hmm. doesn't have to be in there. I mean, if you look at the patent, there's... It's like a, it's a potential. Um, yeah, they're definitely testing it, but from what I've heard, they may not it, yeah. have it on Meteor Lake. There's yeah. like hot chip, hot chip slides from last year, no, from 2021, and they specifically talk about the interposer having active silicon for cash. Mm-hmm. Like it's definitely something. They're not only trying like the the, the test chips. And they're gonna do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I hope so. I hope so. And I mean, it's a, it's really interesting. From my point of view, when I look at AMD, AMD started this whole chiplet craze, but they started it in the high end, like in the desktop and in the server space. And they used it to produce um, small chiplets and to just have one tape out and scale up the entire product stack. It doesn't matter if it's entry-level Ryzen or Threadripper or high-end um, Epic. It's the same. It's the same chiplets. But what they haven't introduced um, until now, I mean, if you don't, if you if you don't count the um, what's the what's the chiplet architecture for um, for mobile, the current Zen four called, they're also reducing one with with X3D. It's basically it's oh, basically Dragon just, yeah, Range. Yeah, yeah, Dragon Range. I mean, they have chiplets in in mobile right now, but it's it's a desktop chip mm-hmm. package for for mobile chips. And if you look. At the actual mobile chips, AMD is monolithic. Like they're sticking to monolithic. And Intel, on the other hand, I mean, if you if you disregard Sapphire Rapids, which has problems and is more like four big tiles, um, their their desktop lineup so far is monolithic. And they're mm-hmm. starting with chiplets in mobile. They're starting in mobile. It's the, the other direction opposite. from AMD. Yeah. And the integration, this chip, these chiplets, and I in the beginning when I heard the name Tile, I'm like, can you just not call it chiplets? I mean, but if you look at it, it's so close, closely, um, so close together. It actually looks like tiles, and it has a much lower um, energy um, penalty. It has communicating, yeah, lower latency, higher bandwidth. Although that's not really the focus, and the chips are much closer interconnected. It's a detrimentally different approach from Intel. 
it's also more costly, it's more complex, but I think it's a super interesting design to, to build something and then enter the mobile market with it. And mm -hmm. I want it to succeed because the design is really, it's, it's cool. It's cool. I want a chip with lots of cash, I, with different tiles where you can switch out the IPs with a little, with little effort if like, you want to update the TPU tile or the CPU tile next generation. And well, it does seem like AMD is basically doing that with Strix, Halo, and yeah. probably everything after Strix, they're going to start doing that more and more. Um, but with regards to Meteor, like, as far as I can tell, the CPU performance... Depending on what you're doing, it is going to be better than AMD's current offerings. Um, in gaming, I don't think it has a chance of touching like an X3D Dragon yeah. Range chip. It's not going to. But at the same time, I think it's efficiency from what I've heard because of what you talked about. It's not just that they're using chiplets. These tiles are meant to be activated and deactivated and interconnected in a way to save more energy. In fact, their IO tile has two little cores so that when you're idling, oh, yeah. it just turns off all of the tiles besides one like smartphone chips to save even more energy. So I think Meteor Lake is going to be hyper efficient in a lot of use cases. Um and I think, but I don't I think it's GPU is gonna be like 10-20% better than Phoenix. It's CPU. It's gonna be a mixed bag of better and similar. Like, do you think it's gonna succeed, or like what do you think would make Meteor Lake not succeed? I mean Intel doing Intel stuff um, would media would make media like not succeed. Like if it just doesn't meet the expectation, if it's if the power draw is too high, if the performance isn't where it should be. Um, but if I'm Intel and I have such an elaborate design, I would like Intel has this evil lineup. I don't know if it's a thing anymore, but they they had this evil lineup where you had like you have to, you had to have a combination of specific hardware to call your mm -hmm. your laptop Evo. And if I'm looking at Meteor Lake and I can actually disable the CPU tile, as I talked about it, because there are CPU cores in the IO um, tile, um, I can actually maybe even disable the GPU tile um, because I can like dump the entire VRAM into the adamantium cache and have mm -hmm. like instant on-off Mm. Or I can still update some parts of the of the display engines, which are in a maybe in a different tile. Like there's a there's a IO tile and there's a SOC tile. The, the SOC tile is the one with the core, but there's a specific smaller IO tile with maybe like some some display functions. Mm -hmm. And so you could actually disable GPU and CPU and still have like an always-on display or update things in the background. And if you have the cache. You don't even need to access the RAM, which further decreases uh, power consumption. So you could have like this, this really this chip that's that doesn't draw any power. Actually, like doesn't draw mm -hmm. any amount of power, but the the laptop is still reachable, it's still able to do things like in the background. And if you if you have like an Evo Plus, or I don't know how you would call it, mm -hmm. if you have like a laptop that's that's capable of doing that, which AMD at this point wouldn't be able to. And you have like this, you can just stand by, will work forever. I, I think, I mean, yeah. Yeah, that'll be something new because that's the unfortunate thing about Phoenix. Phoenix is decent, it is better than its predecessor. <laughs> but fundamentally, it's just a better Rembrandt, right? It's basically take Rembrandt and add 30%, 20 to 30%, slightly lower power. Th that's really all Phoenix does. It's not something fundamentally new. And while I don't think Meteor Lake is going to bring fundamentally new performance, I do think there's a chance it could usher in this new era of laptops that just man are efficient. Um, and, and, you know, to answer my own question too, what I asked you, like, what does it need to do to succeed? 
I mean, we know the performance. There's been leaks about this for months. Uh, it, the drivers need to work and it needs to come out on time. Yeah. That's all it does. It needs to do in my opinion. Like, and, and that's something I keep talking about with people is like Tiger Lake still has trouble booting <laughs> some games. And that's crazy to me because that's three years old. Um, there's still a lot of games that, uh, Alchemist here has a lot of issues with. And what Meteor Lake for me needs to prove is everything works and it's not, oh, it's in one laptop in Korea and it launches in January. Like if it, because by then AMD will probably have Strix point out, you know, it just needs to come out on time and actually work. And if it does, and I think they've got a lot they can build on here because it, it shares the same base tile as Arrow Lake. And I believe as Panther Lake. And so what would be really fascinating is if, I don't know, it doesn't sound like Battle Mages at all on time, but what if they can get out an updated CPU tile and then Battle Mage finally comes out and then that's when they have another generation with that. But then maybe Celestial comes out sooner than expected. What's interesting is thinking how they can just update these interconnected tiles as they move forward. You yeah. know, and, and I think that's also a fascinating approach to these like tiled mobile chips as well. And you don't have to do the entire validation process again. If you mm -hmm. change one tile and it works and you've already validated for a platform because the interconnects and it, like everything that's going outside of the chip is already like it is not changed. I think that's why you also can save a lot of engineering time, a lot of money if if you're if you have this pick and choose um design. And I think that's what Intel is also going for. Like well, so let me let me ask you this because I, I brought up Arrow Lake. Um, Furdock writes in and he says Intel Arrow Lake is an interesting one since it's in this weird transition where Intel couldn't get hyperthreading to work and yet rentable units aren't out yet. Uh, if I have this correct, well, you do. So basically, Jim Keller has this Royal Core project. A lot of things were considered. My understanding is there were two versions of Panther Lake. Uh, one with Panther Cove that had four-way hyperthreading, one with Cougar Cove that had rentable units that, in fact, don't have hyperthreading but have this, like, shall we call them twin core design where there's the equivalent of how you might think of a Zen core and then a Zen C core, and they're grouped into rentable unit duos. Yeah. And because of that, you save die space, and also you can have one of the cores in each of the four rentable units take extra resources and boost higher as needed. It's really the opposite of hyper-threading. They're actually going to less threads that are faster. But Arrow Lake won't have that yet, even if it has a large IPC increase. And it also won't have hyper-threading. So I think it might be in an awkward stage. And Furnock asks, many people are going to be asking whether they should just upgrade to Zen 5 X3D instead or keep waiting for Arrow Lake next year. With Zen 5 looking like a big performance increase, which is to say probably at least as good as Zen 4, and Arrow Lake being an even bigger one, but no hyper-threading, what do you guys think about that? What would you recommend people buy or wait for? Zen 5, which is just another 25 to 35% increase, same 16 cores and hyper-threading, or wait for something that might be 40% better than what we have now, but is 8 plus 16 and no hyper-threading. What do you think the general zeitgeist will flock zeitgeist. towards as well? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's a super interesting question because especially what you talked about with rentable units, when I first heard you talk about rentable units, I it took me a while to understand the concept. Mm -hmm. um, but I first want to answer his question. Um, so with CPUs and especially with CPU performance right now, I feel like Zen 3 X2D is still 
is still where you, you don't need more. Like I currently mm. have a 5800X3 um, in my system and like Zen 4 is better. Zen 4 X3D is better, no question. And Raptor Lake can also outperform it depending on what clock speeds you're on, what, what memory you're on. And there's no question about it, but um, it's how much CPU performance do you actually need? Because mm-hmm. if you're a gamer, you're going to be graphics limited and a Zen 3 X3D will be more than enough. And if you're someone who's looking for a more, like more cores, then the X3D models won't be the, the SKUs you're looking at. Um, so it's like these CPUs, like the current CPU generation is like for me in this space where I'm like, it's, if I'm buying a new system, yes, of course I'm buying Zen 4 or Raptor Lake. But if I have something that's capable, I'm like, I'm not enticed to upgrade right now. Like I have mm-hmm. zero, um, like I don't think about upgrading to Zen 4 for no, like I don't, because there's no, no value for me. And regarding Zen 5 and Arrow Lake, my gut feeling is that Zen 5 will be faster. I think mm. Zen 5 looks like AMD is actually, like, is actually taking a huge step. And as you said, Arrow Lake is more like an in-between. Of course, I could be wrong. Maybe it's the other way around. But now, do you mean better at everything, or better in multi-threading or single-threading? <sighs> Honestly, my gut feeling is better at everything. Mm. I, again, I could be wrong, but I think Zen Five has the potential to be a huge step in in single-core, and AMD already has a lot of multi-thread performance, and especially Zen Five C, like. If I'm AMD, I'm gonna. I, I would. I would release a a 64 core Zen 5C set report or something like this on a, on a small die, and have a lot of performance there. Um, and Arrow Lake is really in this. As he said, it's in, in this real space, and I have to see how it performs before I can judge that. But rentable units are a super interesting concept. And but we're not going to see them until Panther Lake, anyways. Yeah, but so. it screams Jim Keller. I I think. When I read about it, the first thing I saw was Bulldozer. It's mm-hmm. core multi-threading. Bulldozer's idea was like you have basically one core that's really beefed up, but then then you have two execution paths. Like you 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 can basically treat it as a dual core or as a single core. Mm-hmm. And that has been something Tim Keller has wanted to do for a while. I heard rumors back at K8 and K9 and K10 that AMD was trying to work on that and Tim Keller was trying to work on that. And I remember mm. you you have like a video where you talk about that you, you could talk with Tim Keller at some point, remember? Like at, at some hot chips. Yeah, I met him in person at Hot Chips in 2019. That was a while ago. And he was talking about it there over beers with people. Like that yeah. was like, so it, yes, this has Jim Keller's fingerprints all yeah, over it. Yeah. And, and it's, it, I think the double front end for a big core, it's actually a really interesting idea because if you need, if you have something that needs a lot of IPC, you just treat it as one core. But if you have um, tasks that don't need all the execution units with the doubled front end, you have suddenly do two cores. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting design. But again, it's challenging for, um, for the threat director. Like, how do you actually manage it on a software, mm-hmm. on an operating system level? And something else I thought about is Intel's current strategy is the performance and efficiency cores. 
And Intel's efficiency cores, they can really cram a lot of, I mean, is error lake is supposed to go to up to 32, if I remember correctly, the root current Yes, my, under, my understanding, yeah. at least from my end, the people I've talked to, is that it's likely, though, mid to late next year, error lake launches 8 plus 16, and that'll probably be called yeah. the i7. There is an 8 plus 32, but they almost didn't launch it. Then hyperthreading got asked, and they're like, well, we need more threads. So I think there's a chance the 8 plus 32 yeah. variant, though, might not launch until early 2025, maybe even a little later than that. And so I think that is actually a ma mega headwind here because if Aerolake was launching at the same time as Zen 5 with 40 cores total, yeah, I think Aerolake just wins. But then you have to wonder like, well, but if Zen 5 comes out first and then it's only competing with 8 plus 16 with yeah. no hyper-threading and then they add X3D, is there going to be a loss of initiative there? No. But I'm sorry, go on. And yeah, it's, if, even if it stays with 8 plus 16, even if it mm -hmm. stays with just in the current configuration, Intel's approach currently is you have the big performance cores for the single thread performance, and you have a lot of efficiency cores to handle the multi-thread, which mm -hmm. kind of makes sense to, to let go of hyper-threading because you're going multi-thread with, with the e-cores. But if you now implement these renderable units into your performance cores, which mm -hmm. means that basically eight performance cores would be eight really big cores or 16 smaller cores for multi-thread workloads, and then on top, you have the efficiency cores. Suddenly, you have like three different types of cores. Like if you have a task, will it run on the performance or on the efficiency cores? And if it runs on the performance cores, will it run in the reverse SMT mode and see it as one core? Mm -hmm. Or will it run in the, I'm going to call Maybe it, it doesn't unit? need to. I'm just spitballing here. Does it even need to see that it's two cores in a rentable unit? Maybe it's better to just see it as one and it just gets it done quicker and then it gets it done slower but the app sees it as whatever i, I don't know like there's a chance sure. they may want it to see it that way yeah for sure but at some level you have to manage it and i think it's going to be even more complicated so if i'm Intel and i have this i basically got bulldozer done right because bulldozer at at a mm -hmm. like schematic level like at the basic level was was a really great idea i mean jim color like i think this is his idea um, yeah, he left AMD and maybe they took one of the things he was talking about and tried to do it, but failed to or yeah, something. Yeah. And if, if I suddenly have this, if it suddenly works and I have a design with a huge IPC increase and it can split into smaller cores for multi-thread performance, why would I then add additional e-cores? It's, it's really interesting. And, um, I, I want to see how Intel is, is, is managing that because it would be super cool to have a design with like, it's almost like morphing design, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, another interesting thing, I think something to point out too is like how much Intel and AMD are going in different directions with their core design, it seems like in the next few years is people need to remember that like Zen 4, like Zen 3 to Zen 4. So they went from like, 5 gigahertz effectively to 5.7. That's like a 15% clock speed increase. And then they added double-digit IPC. Right, so in single-threading, that gets you to like 29% higher. Now, the all-core was much higher clock speed. They went from like an all-core of like 4.3 to like 5.2 or 5.5. That's crazy. That's where they get a lot of that, like, let me do the math, 10, 20, 30. That's, yeah. But if it was just that all-core clock speed increase with the IPC, you'd expect it to stop at about a 40-35% multi-threading increase with the you know, 30% or something single-threading. And yet there are some apps where it's like 50% faster multi-threading 
that's because they've so tweaked their SMT. Like Zen SMT works better than Intel hyperthreading, right. all things considered. It has from the start, I think. The original it has. In every iteration, they iterate on it more and more and more. So I don't see AMD getting rid of that. I, much more likely, I see a situation where they're just trying to hone it to where they can get it to SMT4, which they considered for Zen 3, famously, and canceled. Um, and, and we might have a situation where we have like 16 AMD cores with, honestly, if I were AMD, I would actually start doing the Zen 5, Zen 5C thing, where maybe you have a chiplet with four big, eight, little but it's really the same core they just don't clock as high but then all of the cores have four-way hyper threading we have this weird scenario where amd has like a 24 core eight of them are the full zen 5 uh, 6 some of them are zen c and then they all have you know so 12 48 threads and then you have intel with eight cores and at least 32 little cores 40 threads and the eight cores can split up maybe <laughs> and the eight cores can split yeah. up and i think we need to remember how strong intel's little cores are they also take up most of the space of an AMD big course, let's be fair about that. But, you know, at the same time, uh, miners, yeah, like Raptor Lake's little cores are as fast as like Skylake. Yeah, definitely. IPC providers, of course. Yeah. And, and multi threading, they're actually faster. Um, and the, I believe Meteor Lake will be a little behind Ice Lake, but I'm pretty sure Arrow Lake's little cores are supposed to be probably in between Tiger Lake and Golden Cove. So when you see 8 plus 32, we're getting 8 cores that are these weird rentable unit cores eventually, but they're like twice as fast as what we have now. And then they have 32 little cores that are almost as fast as Alder Lake's big cores. But then it may be AMD is four-way hyper-threading, and their cores are also a lot faster as well with a ton of cash. So it's... I think there's a reason, yeah, you would get rid of hyper-threading at a certain point, because if you have little cores as fast as Golden Cove, why do you need yeah. hyper-threading? It's a different know? strategy. And Zen 4C is actually something that's most people don't really acknowledge it, because it's so far it's only like a server, it's a cloud-first product. And But if you look at it, it's the same ISA, it's the same IPC if you disregard the half, um, half the size of the L3 cache. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the same core. And just by redesigning and the layout, they, I think they reduce it by 40%. It's just I think it was much, like 35. Yeah, yeah, yeah close like enough. by a huge amount. It, it's this tiny core, which it doesn't clock as high, yeah, but it's also more power efficient. And it has the same IPC. It's the same everything. You don't yeah, need to do anything. It's, In fact, you don't need to do anything really. I've heard they're doing a little bit with Zen 5, but you don't need to do much with a thread director because already apps just choose the fastest core, so it's already yeah. solved. And it's it's like a generational leap, but it's the same generation. And like with Intel and the E cores and the P cores, when 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 I first heard about Alder Lake and the performance of the efficiency cores, I'm like, and the power consumption of the performance cores, I thought, why not just why not just focus on the e cores? Why not dish mm -hmm. uh, the, the I've heard a lot of people say that. Yeah. Like, why not just make these better? These seem better. Yeah. And with AMD, I'm with the same IPC and a little bit lower clock speeds. I understand the idea behind the um behind the kind of mixed cores in in, in mobile chips. But if I'm AMD, I would go only send 4C because die space is really valuable. You, you can have a you have a die space advantage, you have a cost advantage. And mm -hmm. in, in mobile chips won't clock that high anyway. 
and efficiency is more important. So if I'm AMD, I would have released like a eight core Zen 4C uh, or eight core Zen 5C um, APU only. Like why even put the larger cores on there? Well, and I think it's where I think AMD is realizing this for some of their products. Like early Sienna info I had was they're going to have a 32 core like Zen 4 option, and then they're going to have a 64 core Zen 4C option. They announced only the C version, and everything I hear is they may make a Threadripper that uses Zen 4, yeah. but they're only using C cores with a lot of server chips moving forward because they've realized for like 90% of customers, they should basically just be using the C cores anyways. Um, but speaking of uh, C cores and stuff, I actually have an interesting reader mail here. So Chris Rich writes in and asks, for Zen 5, AMD seems to have three variations on their CCD chiplet. You can have a standard 8-core, you can have a standard 8-core with Vcache, or you can have a cloud variant that has 16 cores. So let me throw another possibility. Maybe a chiplet with four standard cores and eight cloud cores, like Strix is looking like it's going to have. Let's say uh, AMD offered you, Max, to make for free a special Ryzen processor max edition with any of those four options for CCDs, what options would you want? And again, it's eight Zen four, let's call it Zen five, eight Zen five, 16 Zen five C, eight Zen five V cache. And then also there's the option for four plus eight. How would you configure a two CCD chiplet? What is which ones would you use all of one, which one, or a combination of which ones? Okay, so again, uh, you said four cores with X3D, eight cores without, or 16 C cores. No, oh, sorry. Eight Zen 5? Yeah. Eight Zen 5 with Vcache, 16 Zen 5C, okay. or a Strix-like offering okay, where okay. it's four big, eight little for a CCD. And you can mix and match. What would you do? Okay. Honestly, right, like, when I was only a gamer and I use my PC only for gaming and, and surfing, I would have definitely said send five X3D because that's what I want. Mm -hmm. um, but since I started YouTube and I mean, editing videos and, you know, at some point I maybe want to switch to 4k, which will increase the performance demand. So I would actually, it's kind of boring. I would just stick with 16 and five C cores because so I 32 think, total, yeah. two, that's it. And maybe they only yeah. hit four gigahertz, yeah. but that's what you go Because with. then I can comfortably go to 4K and I'm pretty sure gaming would be still decently fast enough with 75C. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, it's more interesting if you have eight, eight cores of X3 and 16 75C cores and you actually can just, you know, I would just disable the 75C cores for most of my usual use. And then when I'm editing, I would activate them and... I mean, you can create a, it's a little bit like, like the 7950 X3D right now with one chiplet with X3D and the other one without, just the other one with twice the amount of cores. Like there's, there, there's products AMD could offer, which could be the fastest at gaming and the fastest in, in productivity if you, mm -hmm. if you do it that way. So the question is, will they do it? Like, Yeah, because so far in every roadmap, what I've seen is just... 16 cores for Zen 5, assuming the standard and then, you know, X3D versions come out and they call it a day. Yeah. So I don't know, I don't know, frankly, if that's just to hide that they have another option. Like, I think we have to understand, like, it's totally plausible that AMD is putting that on every roadmap because they know what they can do. It's like they, they just don't want anyone to leak what their real plans are, maybe very high up. But 
I can't help but think that um, the major issue with the 7950X3D is that they had to handle, you know, apps choose the fastest cores. Well, but that's a problem in a game because they want the fastest cores, but actually you don't because the X3D cores clock lower. Yeah. That problem would be solved if what they did is Zen 5 X3D on one chiplet and then on the other chiplet, 16 Zen 5C cores because I don't think they're, they're still not going to clock as fast as the Zen 5 X3D cores. And so there would be, you don't need the Xbox game bar. You don't need to do any of that dumb stuff. And I can't help but think to myself, like, I wonder if what their plan is, is to have the top chip be 8 Zen 5 X3D plus 16 Zen 5C, and then go down from there the whole lineup and call it a day. And there will be a 16-core version, but that'll be in the, you know, maybe two-thirds of the lineup. That yeah. That's what I'm wondering. The only wild card that I think would be really interesting is if they did, because actually my answer would be, I don't know if this is something they can do, but Chris Rich brought up the idea of a hybrid CCD. Well, actually then, if they could do this, I want four plus eight on one CCD with Vcash plus 16 Zen 5C for a total of like, what would that be? 28 cores. Because I really only need four Zen 5 cores. I don't need more cores than that to go above five gigahertz. If you gave me that and put Vcash on that chiplet as well, yeah, I don't know. And I can't help but wonder if that would be better in some games because some games have a huge latency penalty when they have to leave the CCD too. Yeah. But you'd have 12 on it then. I I mean, AMD could definitely do crazy things for sure. And I'm pretty sure they're like, if you're at a level where AMD is at, you're constantly trying to push, push the boundaries. Like, even if you know maybe that's not the way you want to go, you're probably thinking about your, your, your think about new products you're, you're talking through. You maybe even start simulating them. What would be possible? How could we manage interconnects here? Um, something every time I look at AMD's current chiplet setup, I mean, they're using infinity fabric. There's no interposer. And if mm-hmm. you want to go from one die to the other die, you have to go through the IO die back to the other die. It's a really lengthy, um, lengthy process and that's the reason why if you switch from one chiplet to the other chiplet you have this latency penalty and what about if you have like an x3d chiplet that connects both dies and you use that to basically to bank cache 3d stacked above yeah, it between yeah, the two the yeah. thing is of course it's it's I'm, I'm not sure if it's even possible with current manufacturing because you have two chiplets or you have two two dies. I think that's what Zen 6 does, by the way. And, just and letting you know. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason current products use interposers and the chiplets are on top. But um, there's so many possibilities in the future. And I think we just started out with, with advanced packaging. And if you go back a couple of years, chiplets were like this crazy idea. And now chiplets are everywhere. And I think we just started. We, we just we just saw the beginning. And in five years, there will be designs where we think like MI three hundred was actually not that complex. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let me let me ask throw at least one more question at you though, because I, I think this is an interesting one to kind of tie up what we're talking about. UH Freddie writes in and asks, when it comes to Intel's x86 processors across all of their segments, overall, do you think their biggest weakness relative to AMD is in their cores or their interconnects? Like, do you think their cores are too bloated or have too many issues? Or do you think, no, they just need to fix their interconnects and catch up to AMD's Infinity Fabric? Mm. I think that P cores are too big. 
compared mm-hmm. to AMD's default cores and especially I don't know if you've seen the leaks about Arrow Lake. Looks like they're getting even bigger. Especially compared to Zen 4C. They're too big. They take up too much die space. And um, remember, I don't know who it was, but there's like talks about um, Arrow Lake. Now, which co- like one CPU going to three megabytes of L2. That's what I was bringing up. Yeah. 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 And at first I'm like, What's the benefit? I mean, there was also there was already barely a benefit going from 1.25 megabytes mm. cache on on Golden Cove to two megabytes on Raptor Cove. Like, why go? Right, to- and as far as we can tell, Raptor Cove doesn't really have higher IPC. My understanding is that extra cache was so the IPC would scale to six gigahertz and beyond. It's the same thing with Zen five and Zen five C, or Zen four and Zen four C is. Zen 4C has the same IPC as Zen 4 because it doesn't need more cache to have the same IPC at like 3 gigahertz. Yeah. That's why. And, and it, maybe it's because they want Air Lake to hit 6.5 gigahertz. But, you know. Maybe, but also something I would consider is that Intel's, Intel's ring bus, if you have a lot of P cores, like you have 8 P cores and you have 16 E cores connected to the same ring bus, and the same L3 cache. And if the whole CPU is under load and every core at some point wants to access the L3 cache and has to use the ring bus, mm-hmm. you, you're saturating the ring bus. You're slowing down the system. It, it will cost a lot of energy if all the cores are constantly accessing the L3 cache. And all the access, like all the cores will be in each other way. Like core one wants this part of the cache and like it's a saturation problem. And if you increase the local L2 cache, which is at least for the P cores per core, and I mean for the E cores it's per core cluster, you reduce the amount of times these cores actually have to access the L3 cache and that's the ring bus. So I, I think Intel has the P cores are too big and they're getting to a point where their ring bus design might have issues with how many cores are connected. Because AMD is limited with their chiplets. I mean, yes, they have they have a lot of cores, but in each chiplet right now, they still only have eight cores. And with Zen 4C, they only have 16 cores. And Intel is going to a huge number connected to the same ring bus. And so you think it's a core. Intel has a bloated, outdated core issue, not an interconnect issue. The P cores are too big. The E cores are fine, I think. But the P cores mm-hmm. are too big. And... They have too many cores connected to the same ring bus, and they somehow need to solve that. Maybe that's where the rentable units come in, because you could dish the e-cores, and I don't know. It's just I, I think it is. You know, that actually, when I was finally, because I put out, I, I put out my explanation of how rentable units work uh, when Brian Heemskirk was recently on, and in that conversation, they didn't show on screen though with someone at Intel. Someone, the, the person was like. Just to be clear, Intel's aware their P cores are too big and Arrow Lake should be the last one. Like Cougar Cove is supposed to solve that. Uh, maybe even Lunar Lake will, honestly. Mm-hmm. Lunar Lake, which I believe is four plus four, so far doesn't seem like it has rentable units. I guess we'll see if it ends up getting them. Um, but that's where like the test chip is for Cougar Cove, I think, and so on and so forth. So I think, and that's where the rentable units come in as well. Is they're trying to save die space by letting resources be shared between two cores on a rentable unit. Yeah. But that's that's the, the problem for Intel though. Is that is two years away, so at least maybe three. And for Intel, then I think they're just going to have more expensive to make things that 
just giant cores, you know. It's, um, they have to compete, and I hope it works because we need competition. It wasn't fun when Intel was basically the only CPU manufacturer between 2010 and 2017, and it wouldn't be fun if AMD got in a dominant position. I mean, they're pretty far away, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't be fun the other way around too, because AMD I, wouldn't be the nice guy. <laughs> I, I, I think Intel is successfully. <sighs> I don't know if I want to use the word successfully, but so far they are, they have a dam up and they're holding back the water a little bit, but there's a lot of people, a lot of analysts and hedge funds, people I talk to that are like, I don't know, actually AMD may get to 50% market share next year. And if that happens, I don't know. I think that's when Intel is going to have to make some really hard decisions, like gutting AXG further, further they already kind of have. And they've already killed off Nuck or sold it to Asus, basically. Like they're, they're going to have to start gutting more and more and more stuff to the point where they're basically only making client and server anymore. Yeah. And um, I just wish this stuff we're talking about with rentable units was coming out next year because as impressive as Cougar Cove and Panther and uh, Nova Lake sound, um, I don't know. I think Zen Six. We've already you've already hypothesized. I believe, by the way, something I've heard is how it's going to work. And I, I think I, I just worry, you know, if it's a little too late because I don't think AMD's in any position to milk the market right now. But man, if they got out Zen Six before before even Panther, like it could be pretty bad. I think AMD has to execute. And if you look at the server market, AMD right now is a point where enough companies have adopted AMD's ecosystem that mm-hmm. I think like it's, it's, it's like a house of cards. And even though AMD had better server products for quite a few years or few generations right now, they had to dig into the Intel market sharing to all the companies that had, have used Intel servers for decades. Mm-hmm. But every company that switches, every server that switches, that switch, not only... like increases the company's exposure to AMD. It increases how much software, how much people are working on optimizing stuff for AMD um, hardware. And AMD is, I think, at the tipping point where they have, especially in server, where they will become a really big problem for Intel because so far they only had better uh, products, only better products, but now they have better products and they're accepted in the market. And that's a dangerous They're at that threshold. Yeah. And that was something an anonymous server engineer comes on every couple of years brought up is it's like, once you get over 35% market share, you're over a third. It kind of starts to look like half. And it's basically regarded as if there's two options and people aren't afraid to use you. It's not like, oh, well, there's this tiny little upstart. They're like, no, AMD or Intel, which one you want? And the second that switch happens in purchasing decision makers minds that's where it's like starting to just becoming a coin flip if intel can hold any business and the problem is intel's entire business is built on holding most of the market (laughs) you know and and amd's right about there you know um i guess the final question i want to ask that i think is a good one to close out on is Chris Rich writes in and says, for x86 processors, what do you think Intel and AMD could learn from each other, particularly with regards to chiplets? So, like, what does Intel need to learn from AMD, and what does AMD need to learn from Intel? I think Intel needs to learn that sometimes less complex 
isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, being like focusing on the signs that are a little bit smaller, a little bit more, uh, less ambitious. That's something, I mean, if, if, if you look at AMD's, uh, Intel's failure with the product process notes, it was always the case that their process notes were too ambitious. Like mm -hmm. we're going to 40 nanometer, but it has to be this much better. And we're going to 10 nanometer, but it has to be this much better. And um, as soon as you're not the monopolist anymore, that's a problem. And I feel like that that's the same thing that led to these huge peak wars. Because at some point, like someone has to say, well, that's enough. The core is big enough. We have enough IPC. Yes, we could change things. Yes, we could. Yes, we could add things. But in the end, sometimes less is more. Mm -hmm. And what AMD could learn from Intel is, that's a good question. What could AMD learn from Intel right now? I, I think the e-cores are something that AMD had to look, has to look into. I mean, they have smaller cores for sure, mm -hmm. but I feel like what, what Intel has designed with the e-cores is really, really interesting. And I think... AMD also needs to look at Meteor Lake because it's a completely different approach to chiplets. It's much, it's much more closely integrated. It's a, it's a much tighter design. And if Meteor Lake uh, performs well, Intel uh, AMD needs to, needs to be on its toes. Yeah, I mean, what I put down... Actually, and this is something I've heard contributors uh, like Carbon Cry mentioned to me and other other people as well, is that AMD's FPGA and simulation and projecting for architecture capabilities seems to be generations ahead of Intel. Like, RDNA 3, this was some scandal at the end of last year, that Navi 31 uses A0 silicon. Oh, yeah. Meaning it's not like the first probably beta chip they made, but it's the first productizable chip they made. And then they sold it, you know, and, and I look at Turin, I've leaked benchmarks of Turin. They're already chopping the charts. Those A0 silicon. It seems like if anybody really wanted to, they could have sold Zen 5 Turin now as A0 silicon, but it's, you know, they're going to make it a bit better. And Navi 31 ended up below expectations, but it was A0 silicon. I suspect there was a B0 that failed and they just had to launch it. You can say that's bad, but you can also say, wow, that's impressive that they can design something, simulate it with FPGAs, and it actually works the first day you make it. And I, I don't remember what it's on, but I believe Sapphire Apps is on like C8 silicon or some it's iteration. And I think if there's something Intel needs to learn is, all right, you design this thing, Get better at simulating what the bugs will be before you make a zero. My God. Like, and that is where all these delays come from. Meteor Lake was supposed to come out against Phoenix, and Sapphire Rapids was supposed to launch two years ago, but they didn't. It's actually very funny to go look at my Sapphire Rapids leaks from 2019 and realize it didn't really come out until this year. I follow like, the whole thing. Yeah. It's was always a next year product. Yeah, and then it was, oh, we'll come out at the end of the year, and then it didn't. And that is what Intel needs to learn, is you, your stuff... <laughs> I mean, heck, Sapphire Rapids could have had 48 cores, but if it came out two years ago, <laughs> 
way better situation against 64 Zen 3 cores. Yeah, like, it, it's just absurd. And, and that's what Intel needs to learn, clearly, is, and a lot of that is how they work together and so on and so forth. Um, that's my answer to the question. Although, if I, I didn't really think ahead of time about what AMD could learn from Intel. But I think the one thing I can come up with now is that they need to start learning to go for more markets at once. And Intel can do it because they're big. Maybe they went for too many markets. Look at AXG. That was a disaster. But in, uh, AMD needs to start coming up with ways to have all of their segments iterate consistently. Like, all right, maybe that's what the top RDNA 4 being canceled is about. They're like, we can't afford to spread ourselves out this thin but they need to figure something out where there's always multiple new apus not just one always yeah. multiple new apus and always they're available thread, and they're available right like it almost feels like phoenix is available before rembrandt was even though it came out in what quarter two rembrandt? yeah it was this amazing product and then it took like half a year for the first products to show up and only in low numbers yeah yeah so i don't know what you can handle amd but Maybe just leapfrog graphics. RDNA 4 is the first step. RDNA 5 adds a tick to it and adds chiplets. Okay, just leapfrog that way. Maybe with Threadripper, you only you just say out loud, we're going to skip a generation every now and then. Yeah. Like, we'll skip Zen. Maybe they should have skipped Zen 3, but then had Zen 4. Skipped Zen 5, had Zen 6. Whatever you can do consistently... But you got to do it in all segments because it's so weird when you have people I talk to that bought a Sapphire Rapids workstation that they hate, (laughs) but they did it because there's no Zen 4 and Zen 3 is practically wasn't there. And if people could just know every year we're going to have three new APUs, every other year we'll have Threadripper, every year there will be a new Epic or something, or every two years there'll be a new Epic. I think that kind of consistent overlapping is what AMD needs to get better at. And frankly, I think they have realized that, but and you know, I I'm sure Intel's realizing they can't uh, keep having everything delayed two years. But if I looked at what both companies did, well, it's like Intel always has new stuff in every department. AMD always needs it. Maybe it's every two years, but they always need it. And we need to be able to predict it. Cause if we can't predict it, this is where people get mad at Radeon. We don't know when a new flagship's coming out. We don't know yeah. when, yeah, Threadripper is coming out, and we're just like, do I wait? Uh, maybe I'll just buy Intel or NVIDIA because I don't know what you're doing, AMD. Yeah, Intel has built up this ecosystem with a lot of partners with deep ties, and they, the partners know that Intel can deliver. Like, Of course, they have their problems with, with the products, but if Intel releases a new lineup, it's everywhere immediately because they have the channel partners ready. And I think AMD just grew very quickly from a technology point of view, but the the channel and, and customer side of things at AMD are still a little bit behind because AMD just grew so quickly that they're just still a little bit stuck in this mode. We're the underdog, mm-hmm. which when it comes to servers and CPUs, they're not anymore. They, they need to up their game. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't know what that game is. Maybe you just leapfrog. Zen 4 lays out the architecture. Zen 5 has a slight upgrade. Like, Zen 2 really wasn't that fundamentally different than Zen Plus. It really wasn't. You know, but it went to chiplets. Stop trying to do everything at once and then not launching anything. Just give us something predictable, you know. Um, 
Well, that's, I mean, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, I, I We got through most of the questions and subjects we wanted to, I think, in a slithering all over the place way like uh, usually happens on this show. But I mean, is there anything else you wanted to talk about while you're here? You know, Tom, there's always something I want to talk about. Like I could talk another two hours with you. Um, but I think we covered most of the stuff we wanted. Mm-hmm. And new things will come up for sure. Uh, oh, for sure they will. And I'm, I, you know, I, I have a feeling you'll be coming on the show again sometime in the future as well. Cause I think this is, I think this was a bit different than other episodes like this, but it was one of those episodes where we can talk about anything. Yeah. And so, like you said, and like Brian Heemskirk says too, we could probably talk for five hours, but you know, and I really enjoyed it. Well, I hope your fans did as well, but for people who aren't your fan yet, please tell them where they can find you. Oh, um, you can find me on YouTube, and my channel is just at High Yield. And I'm also on Twitter, um, or is it called X right now? I think Twitter X. I still call it Twitter. I still call it Twitter. Um, And my handle there is High Yield YT, so basically High Yield YouTube, but YouTube as YT. But that's mm-hmm. everything. Like um, my Twitter account is like 800 followers or something, and I don't have well, any other social media. Hopefully, you, you can go above a thousand. Then after this, everyone make yeah. sure you check them out on X or Twitter, and you know follow. Um, and then I'll just do the usual spiel. Thank you to everybody for watching, for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Broken Silicon on your podcast app of choice. Give us a review. Subscribe to Moore's Law is Dead on YouTube. And ring the bell button and like this, share this. There's a Patreon where you get this early ad free. You can ask questions. There's die shrinks. There's a lot of stuff out there. It'll be in the description. Um, And uh, I don't know. Yeah, one more time. Thanks for listening, everybody, and have a good week. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, it's not just me. Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, renders being done by the industrial designer Jean-Philippe Clermont, and special assistance is also provided by Carmen Cry and Kerry Nosugad as well. Find all of our information at www.moreslawsdead.com on the about slash support page in the event you do want to hire me for consulting work, hire Gerard for audio work, hire Jean-Philippe for industrial design work, or you're interested in working with Carbon Cry or Kerry No Sugata as well. You can also find our long-term sponsors on that page if you want to show them some love for putting food on our tables. Or you can also mail us some love. You can send letters or hardware donations to the following address. Moore's Law is Dead, P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. Although, to be honest, the best way to show Moore's Law's Dead some love is to support us on Patreon. Patrons are what makes Moore's Law's Dead content truly possible. Every month and really every day, depending on who you're talking about, me, Gerard, Dan, and John Philippe are working tirelessly to provide a steady stream of content that we could not keep doing unless we knew the work was possible without being reliant on sponsors dictating every little thing we put out. Don't get us wrong. We love our sponsors, but we love directly working for you, our fans, 
much more. If you have any extra money, even a couple free dollars a month, consider supporting us directly on Patreon. Those couple of monthly dollars will get you access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to ask guests questions, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who I am sure would love to meet you. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to early, ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the ability to ask questions in all Broken Silicon episodes and Loose Ends live streams ahead of the recording, and the entire back catalog of Moore's Law Z podcasts, in addition to having thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts depending on the tier with other perks available as well. And hey... If you cannot afford to support us directly every month, please do share Moore's Law is Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family and on social media and websites like Reddit. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app of choice. All of this does really help us so much. But like I said, this podcast would not be possible without it, the patrons directly providing predictable and reliable support every month. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher supported levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Foles, Zijits, Daniel D, Aaron Close, Jen Renner, Daniel Hyde, Brian Ringelman, Sam Miller, MJV1, Deke, GZ Ziggy, SNES Tomer, Jim Ferriera, Andrew S, Falcon Malev, General Drips, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Eric Jackson, Sarcastro, Evan Dingle, Greg Wanchek, Chris Rich, Nicholas Buckner, Benjamin Cannon, Jonathan, Jesse Jeskaliak, 3DS Boy 08, Hal Buma, Blake, Art4Room.com, Franco Frederick, Shredbird, Dr. Foreman, Jake223, Jake Martin, Zicky, Ricky Tan, Christopher A. Butler, Stephen Hart, Meat and Pork, Stu, Tim Robb, Ian Clifford, Travis Gooding, Nanian, Samuel Moss, Deepest Learners, Mad, Zutu Taylor, Stephen Coates, Michael McGee, Greg, Patrick Grove, Stephen, Jordan Simkovic, Amiable Chief, Win Wang, Tommy, Mark Mitchell, Julian Leake, I Should, Mark Raidmaker, The Boss, Haas, James Anderson, Cole Attic, Judson N, Cameron, Wesley Sager, Henry Zhang, Michelle Pell, G31337 Antics, Roger Davies, Cameron, Hexapuma, Chrysantine, Myers, Tech Rants, Reginald Ari, Tika Autumn, Jackson Miller, Gurria Sacker, Nathan Zink, The Eternal Dreams, GSMMH, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Sedler, AWS Danny, Loophole 35, Windstar, James I Radar, Corey Leonard, Little Germany, Shay Milton, Pulse Media, Dave Schultz, McDaffy, Stephen Dick, Glug, Chuck Glidden, Brett Jones, Austin Haggerty, Justin Bustle, I-711-700K, Joe Foote, Hardland, Slush Boss, C2, Jensen Angima, Joseph Kelly, Samuel Park, Keith Moore, Himsa Gung, Tails, 2299, Brian Wright, John Siphos, Earth Taurus, The Forbidden Juice, Fenty CZ, Kiko Sato, Toka, RB Racer, Me, Val Verga, AC, Colin Tadards, Lord Starscream, Michael Cozy, Dr. J. Matt, Alex Vega, Jetfree D, John Swin, Rodent BC, Terminal Junkie, Brian Wright, Jed Baldwin, Joe LaMartina, Kikum, Albert Gunn, Solarize 80, Christopher Ricks, Jamie Whitworth, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 